brought to you by Brass and Unity. We make wearable conversation starters. Our new buddy check packs are available now. Grab one and check on one of your closest buddies. They may need it now more than ever. Go to brassandunity.com, use the code UNITY and get 20% off. And let's all heal together. And brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat flip-flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. And brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. Lately, I have been having guests on that have been blowing my mind just beyond all belief. And then I was introduced to Phil. And Phil, if you're not aware, owner of American Yogi, is um, terrifying. And in the best ways possible, in the most light-loving um humanity-based, care for others. It's what you radiate, my dude. And when I got the chance to have a conversation with you and somebody kind of did an intro for us, I was thrilled. There's very, it's very rare that I get that excited. And it's because I've watched you from afar for a bit. I've seen, I've kind of seen the growth of your company. I've seen you, but to really get to understand the person behind all this light and love and community was such a great opportunity. So thanks for being on the show. No, thank you. I think that's my favorite intro I've ever gotten. Thank you for yes. that. Yes. Well, it's true. <laughs> and hey. humbling. Yeah. Well, it's it's a wild thing when you 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 don't necessarily know what people think about you until you know what people think about you, whether it's good, the bad, but you know, whatever. Yeah, but yeah. It's, it's always it's good like to a, acknowledge. It's a balance between like not needing outside validation and also like really enjoying the outside validation, you know, like being yeah. seen. So it's nice. Thank you. Yeah, that's okay. You're so welcome, my friend. I'm going to jump right into it. You and I had a call uh, previously about some of the stuff we're going to talk about. And I'm not going to lie to you. Like I went, I went hard in the paint on what, on what I want to touch on with you because you're not what I, you know, if I, if I'm going to have a conversation with a military member or previous member or whatever, Mm -hmm. they, they, you know, it's high school, 9-11 and, and then they join the army. But yours was kind of a bit of a backwards way of looking at things. And you thrust yourself into a situation really early on previous to the military. And if you're okay with that, I would like you to kind of jump and go from there. Yeah, no, I'd love to. Um, the funny thing is, you know, when, when I, uh, when I joined the army, like I wouldn't tell anybody about this. Like I didn't talk about my past. I want to be judged by, you know, for one way or the other. Um, so it's cool to be in a place to actually start talking about it openly. Yes. Um, well, we're stoked because it is quids. Like I'm, I'm pre- cause this is a topic we're going to get into with you. That is 
it's it feels like it's rarely looked at by the west media it feels like we are in conjunction with the country we're aligned with a country that's allowing some serious atrocities to happen i mean we're aligned with a lot of countries like that we're aligned with saudi arabia you know that's one of the worst we're aligned with plenty of them but for some reason this one feels this country feels like this just shouldn't be happening. I mean, especially after World War II, I don't get how we are allowing this to happen. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we have we have a lot of good people and a lot of good intentions across the board. And it's a matter of like coming together as a collective for actually some good. And I think right. that's that's sort of been the theme for me is is figuring out a, you know, my am I pursuing something that I'm passionate about? in any capacity. And then, you know, number two, am I doing something for the greater good? And like though, to me, if I could hit both those checks and I knew it was going the right way. And I, if I was surrounding myself with people that were also hitting those checks and I know we were all going the right way. So I think that's kind yeah. of the vein you're, you're referring to, right? Yeah. So when did you decide that you were going to become essentially a war photographer out of the blue? How did that yes. happen? I actually, I was having a conversation with a, with a curator of uh, the National Vets Museum yesterday. Uh, she posted, uh, she, yeah, it's really cool, actually. She, um, I was featured up there last year and I stayed in contact with the, with the curator and she's an amazing person and she studied photo and I was a photojournalist, so we, we get along really well. And she posted uh, some excerpts from Slightly Out of Focus, which is a book by Robert Kappa um, about his experience in World War II. And I told her, I was like, that is the singular book that propelled me into war, um, which is a pretty, a pretty cool thing that, to, to think and to say, because I never thought about it until I saw the book again. So I saw her post it. Um, but uh, to go a little further back than that, so I was a I was college kid in uh, 2003, and I was in business school. And I remember, like, I remember getting to school and the first couple of weeks, you know, everybody's wearing like really nice clothes and, you know, looking a certain way and talking a certain way. And, and I didn't really jive with the people around me, but I was like, well, I don't know what I want to do with my life. So business just seems smart. So I'm going to go to business school and I'm in class and, and I'm just doodling and drawing and daydreaming for the first couple of weeks. And I said, well, this, this isn't for me. Um, <laughs> so that was the first time, like as an adult that I took a step to change my life in a, in a kind of a scary, but positive way in my mind. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go write the next great American novel. I'm going to go, I'm going to be a writer. So then I went from business school, dropped out of that, and then ended up in a creative writing program. And I started writing. And I was like, oh, this is pretty rad. And I did that for a few weeks. And then it just started feeling like work. And I was like, well, shit, this is this actually isn't what I wanted. I wanted to be Kerouac, but I didn't want to sit there and just you know, <laughs> pour into pages all the time. So I dropped out of, write, of creative writing. And I was like, all right, I got to figure out the next thing. Um, and then after that, I found, well, you know, I like writing. So why not journalism? So I went to print journalism school. And I spent a couple of weeks in that and, you know, they, they kind of introduce it to you by saying, look, you're going to, first thing you're ever going to write as a, as a, a news journalist is obituaries. That's where we wrote. These are like my old, my old professors at that time came up in like this, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s in the journalism world. And they're like, get ready to write obituaries. Oh. I was like, well, that shit's for the birds. So I'm not, I, I can't do this. Um, and I, I I was like, you know what? I don't even want to, I don't want to do math because I'm terrible at math and science. I'm always like the, you know, language, writing, um, mm -hmm. art kind of brain. You're creative. So I found this, 
yeah, but I didn't know how to express it. I just knew that I was creative inside. I didn't know, didn't know in what, in what capacity. So I found this intro to photo class and I was like, I'll just come take this class. Seems kind of cool. There's no books involved. I can just go out and do things and then come back and hopefully get an okay grade. I can pass. <laughs> and so I took it and I realized it was the first thing I ever did in my life that I was, I was naturally good at. Um, you know, the first time I picked up a camera, it felt natural to me. I could, I had a knack for composition. I had a knack for light. I had a knack for color. Um, so I took that first, that first course and I was like, all right, I'm gonna stick with this. This is my, this is my thing. It wasn't business. It wasn't uh, creative writing. It wasn't print journalism. It's photo. Photo is my thing now. So I poured into photo and I kind of, the, the learning curve was, was really sharp, but I felt like I caught up pretty quick. because I started a little later in college and I read Robert Kappa slightly out of focus, just on a whim. You know, my, my teacher suggested it to me, you know, as you know, he was the first combat photographer that, that, you know, we ever had in our country. So he figured he'd be a good dude to follow, read the book, inspired like crazy, decided I want to go to war. Um, so I hey, found a small up. photo. Of, yeah. Yeah. Back up, back up. Did you have any military family where you were like, war is something we've talked about. It is in no, our lives. That's a really good question because so my, both my grandfathers were in the Navy or no, sorry, one was in the Navy, one was in the Army. Um, dare neither you. of them were, were overseas, you know, in, in, uh, in combat, but, you know, they were really proud of their Naval service, but it wasn't something we ever talked about as kids. Um, really, like for me, because I know you mentioned 9-11, I remember when I was in high school, I always thought like nothing ever happened. Like life is boring. Like I, nothing ever shakes ever shakes anyone around me including myself like I go to school you know I, I'm, I wasn't enjoying myself I, I didn't feel like there was any edge to life like there was a hole then 9-11 happened and I remember sitting on the couch uh, with my mother and we we're watching people you know jump from from buildings and I thought to myself holy shit nothing is ever going to be the same again and it was like I remember in that moment thinking that I'm going to go to war like I remember it um, you really? know, as a high schooler. Yeah, I knew that was what my calling was. I wanted to go overseas and see, you know, go to the source. Um, it wasn't like a patriotic calling at that point. It was just, it was more of a fascination, you know, that, okay. that there's a side of life that's just so removed from my reality. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to, I wanted to taste it. You know, I wanted to experience it because I was so affected by 9-11. I was so affected as a kid. You know, it's like, I went from zero to 60 in, in a day. I went from, you know, thinking life was peaceful and calm, not being exposed to, you know, that sort of violence. Um, Have you ever thought about life. that? Have you really ever sat there and thought about that? Just, like just for yeah. a second, like the reality of what, what that did and how many people's uh, real perspective changed on their safety and changed on world events and what happens and it can that happen? Cause that just seemed since world war two, I mean, we had some, some stuff, but I mean, nothing that shook the globe again yeah. in a way I, like I, that. I think about it in a way that, you know, there's no other event that I can think of in my life. And, and really it's, I guess it's a generational thing that has affected every single, at least, you know, American, Canadian, North American, you know, Westerner around the world, really like, but, you, you know, especially here, you know, when you talk about 9-11 with someone, they have an experience of it. You know, there's, there's a shared collective Always. trauma from that day. Yeah. yeah. And some people went, you know, the protective route and some people went the, you know, ran, the run towards danger route. Um, yeah. and, and we ran towards danger, right? Like that was, that was where we were called uh, yeah. for 9-11. So I have thought about it that way before. 
but I don't think I ever really analyzed, you know, as much as since, since I became a veteran, I started thinking about that stuff a lot more, um, mm-hmm. you know, kind of reevaluating how I got to where I am now. Um, and being at the National Veterans Museum a couple months ago really put it into perspective for me. Um, but, but really, I, I guess I kind of don't, I don't think about it that much. I feel like I probably should, but. It's one of those things I, I only, when someone brings it up, it kind of like sparks that in me and go, God, I, I've had these conversations so often with people and it's the same. It's the same. I can sit there and I can say, Hey, where were you on nine 11? And there's a memory that just pops. Yeah. It was a traumatic event for everyone in its own levels and its own way. And it hit people differently. And I remember very vividly, I was at a, I was at a fashion trade show called magic. And I was having a conversation with one of the, the people that runs the show. And he was from New York. And for whatever reason, just not the type that's military, not the type that's, you know, war kind of deal. I, I, I we got, ha- we started having the conversation about the, the, the casings and I was telling him why. And he started tearing up. And this is a very, like, not the guy that you would have thought that would come from. And he, he said, I watched the towers drop and I was yeah. there and I lived down the street and it blew my mind because I was young enough to know, and I witnessed it on a TV and I remember the, the energy and the vibration of people and my parents. And I remember all of it, but then I was removed enough that I could see those were real people and it was happening, but I never thought I was so young that I, that I would meet those people or I would have conversations with people. The one lady I know, she, she's a, a fashion person in New York as well. And she, she said, I was standing in my, I was standing in my bedroom and my dad was a firefighter and he called me and he said, don't go outside, get out of the city. And she said, she looked as she turned her head, she looked into her long uh, mirror from the ground length and she watched the tower go from behind her in her mirror. And it's, it's like, it's, yeah, it's like being in a war zone on your, in, in, in the Western world, which is not something we've had that experience. And so for whatever reason, I, I bring it up because it, it only seems to come up when I'm having conversations like this, but it seems like everybody has a story. And I, I do wonder though, sitting down and thinking about how many people that affected and, and what it did longevity wise for their lives. Do you ever, do you ever think about, so when I think about 9-11, I I like to, or I generally go towards, well, it's been a long time since 9-11. There's a generation now that never experienced 9-11 that it's so far removed and I want to say a lot of the reason I think that our country or countries have gone the way that they have is that there isn't that shared hardship. You know, there isn't that, I mean, remember nine twelve when mm-hmm. everyone was like hugging in the stores and waving and smiling. I'm like, wow, this, I mean, that's, that's to me, like what, what the middle East feels like sometimes, you know, that, mm-hmm. that like familial feeling, that community feeling yep. But nine twelve is, you know, people ask me about nine 11. I said, that's what I want. I want to return to nine twelve. You know, when yeah. everyone supported everyone for, you know, for who we were and what we were experiencing together, you know, they right. talk about like the, um, like World War II in London, you know, the, the, the yeah. rates of depression were the lowest, I think lowest, in, I don't know if recorded history is the word, but lowest you know, during the firebombing, lowest during the air raids, because people were together as a community, people were experiencing hardship together. 
not in mm-hmm. peacetime, you know, not, not when everything's okay and you have the, the regular rigors of life, you know? So I think about as countries, like, not that that's what we need, but we don't have that shared experience right now. Like it's too far removed, but to really bond, I feel like as a country. You're, you're, I think you're super accurate on that. I think hardship creates, creates community, hardship creates support. It, those types of things are necessary to grow. And when a society doesn't struggle, it gets complacent. And we've seen that. That's pretty evident. But I apologize for my tangent there. No, no. So, so you read this book and you go, this is, this is it for me. It's over. I'm going to be a war photographer. Yeah, it, it, it really, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. You said that, you know, that hardship creates community. What I, what I wanted inside myself is I, I wanted hardship. Like I wanted to go struggle. You know, I was mm-hmm. a, I was a wrestler for, for six, seven years before that. And I loved how hard it was. Like I was terrible for years and years and years, getting my mm-hmm. ass kicked, get concussions, like just terrible. And then all of a sudden after like six years came together and I became a great wrestler, right? that hardship shaped me as a person. And now that I was, you know, I was out, I'm an adult now at that point, I wanted, I wanted hardship again. I wanted to challenge myself in a way that was fulfilling. And, I, you know, I, I guess it was kind of the combination between, you know, 9-11 and all wanting to serve and wanting to be on the, I used to tell people I wanted to be on the forefront of history. And that's why I wanted to be a photojournalist. Mm. So I'm looking at these images and I'm thinking, man, I I can take these photos and it feels really important. You know, people are still looking at these images. I want to do something that has a lasting impression like this. And I also want to experience, you know, hardship and danger and conflict and and all these things, you know, just the same reason that, that uh, young people join the military is they want to experience a lot of those things too sometimes. Um, So I found a small photo agency in Jerusalem, Israel, and I got hired for like, it was like three, four month stretch. Um, I got a, a bus pass and um, I was staying in an immigration house with a couple of Belarusians, didn't speak any English. It was like, it was really yes. cool because it was a super multicultural, like a really tall apartment building full of these multi, you know, multi-room apartments. And, and you're a big dude. Small. Yeah. <laughs> Like big dude, American, like just wore my baseball hat and my Pumas, spoke no yeah. Hebrew, spoke no Arabic. But I was like, you know, I was raised Jewish. So it was easy for me to, to, to go. And I was like, I'm just going to go experience life. I just want to go. I want to go see some conflict. I want to go on my own. I had nothing to my name. I just, I had a few pairs of clothes and my camera and like I had a bus pass and that was it. And I go to and from, you know, the old city to the office and then, and then back to the apartment and, you know, at, at night we'd sit and, you know, drink vodka and I'd listen to, you know, Belarusian folk songs. And it was, it was a great experience. And at the same time, um, I was at this tiny photo agency. It was like three, four photographers or four or five photographers. And my first, I think it was my first week or so, I met this Jordanian who was working in the West Bank. And I was begging them to take me to the West Bank. I wanted, I wanted to go to the conflict. You know, I wanted to go to the protests. I wanted to go, you know, to areas that were dangerous. I wanted to start seeing things that, um, you know, really justified me being there. So I made a deal with him and I said, all right, I will write your cap because he spoke very little English. So I said, I'll write your captions in English for your, for your pictures. If you will take me to, into the West Bank, I want to, I want to see it. Um, Because every Thursday, I think it was Thursdays, there was a protest at the border wall. There's this 30-foot wall that they they were building at the time in 2006, you know, all around West Bank and Gaza, because in 2001, there was a series of just brutal terrorist attacks. So, like, I think there was um, suicide bombings in Jerusalem constantly. So, Israel's answer was, okay, we're going to put these huge walls up. So, 
wasn't as easy. Yeah, it wasn't easy as it sounds, though, because every week they'd go and protest at hundreds of Palestinians. But I wanted to go see it. No political reasons, no political background at all. Simply a college kid that wanted to go to war. That's like all, literally all it was, right? That's it. Okay. So, so he takes me to the West Bank. I'm like my first. This is like my first time there. Um, I'm like eyes super wide. He's driving me around. I'm watching the PLO, um, you know, the, the Palestinian, I think it was Palestinian either way. I don't want to butcher it, but I was watching mm-hmm. the, you know, the local security there dressed in black AKs everywhere, like 21 years old, never seen any of this stuff before. I'm sitting in a, in an olive field um, with this old lady is pulling herbs from her garden and making us tea and everyone's speaking Arabic and I have no idea what's going on. Um, and then all of a sudden I end up at this protest. We drive up to this border wall and all the photographers will start putting on gas masks and body armor and they're they're like suiting up and i'm looking around like does anybody have anything for me because i i didn't bring I, anything i didn't bring it I didn't, it I didn't get the packing list right so and they're like no sorry and so we walk out of the car <laughs> and there's like 20 25 photographers there because like this is it's like a political theater i guess right like the palestinians march up they you know they protest and the photographers are on this hill yeah. And I'm looking at all these photographers. I'm like, what are you guys doing up on the hill? All the action is down below by the gate. Yeah. But I don't, they don't speak English and I don't speak Arabic. So I just walked down by the gate and I'm standing around all these like police officers and, and soldiers. And they're just waiting for this like throng of Palestinians to, to, to march up from this town. And um, they're singing and they're waving flags. I'm like, wow, this is really cool. I've got a great shot right here. And I'm like, I got my camera up and I'm, you know, down the line like to get them as they're marching up they come up to the gate still all the photographers are up on the hill and you know i'm wondering why at this point why they're not down getting maybe they're bored they don't care i didn't know um and then all of a sudden it you know it, ha- it, it goes on for a little while and I, I don't know how long it's been it's just too long ago for me to remember but a little while goes by and my back is turned to the soldiers and then all of a sudden everybody is running past me like darting past me and I don't know what's going on once again. So I just start running too. And like mid stride, um, everything goes black. And I felt like burning on my arm and I couldn't hear a thing. But I just kept running and running and running. And eventually I found myself in a field and I'm just surrounded uh, by people that just start crowding me. And I looked down at my arm and I'm uh, bloody and, and a little bit burnt, like charred on my arm. It turns out I was hit by like a flashbang or something. Um, so it went off right next to my head. So I was, I was deaf and I was bleeding and I was surrounded by strangers in the West Bank and I had no idea what was going on. Um, so then I've got cameras in my face and now the journalists start coming over and like whatever the equivalent to like the blogger was at that time, people had their own little, you know, civilian style journalists. Um, and then eventually the guy I was with comes and grabs me by the collar and just pulls me back and then rushes me into a car. And then we end up in some small, uh, it was the agency free press office in the West bank. Um, and I'm, I'm just, I can't hear a thing. And we're just waiting. I'm just, it's all these Arab photographers speaking Arabic and then me, and I'm just like sitting there, you know, wondering what the hell is going on. And that was day one. Uh, Cause you're a Western <laughs> dude who just yeah. was in with the Palestinians running amongst them. Why are you doing that? And now they have a camera in your face. It's the perfect opportunity. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Propaganda, right? You know, they're, oh, they're firing on Westerners. You know, all I knew about it, they were like, they're like, oh, they shoot rubber bullets there. So just watch out. That's all I knew. But 
that's why and I've actually researched. I can't find that video anywhere. I can't find any news on it. I can't find anything. Really? It's so long ago. It's like before social media, you know, before, I don't even think Facebook somebody's, was around. Somebody's got that. Got to be somewhere. They, dude, yeah, so if that you was, could ever get your hands on that. That'd be wild. I would love, if somebody found that someday, if I ever blow up, that would be amazing. So, no, it's when you blow up. Yeah, yeah. That's better. Yeah. It's okay. I'll correct you. Um, <laughs> okay, so you go, what happens after that? Because I don't know if you fully understand the ins and outs of that country enough to like to explain it to listeners as to why people within the country were being like gassed and are yeah. constantly being gassed and bombed. <laughs> yeah. So, so what, what was happening at the time is so Israel was constructing this, this border walls. It, it's legitimately like a 30 foot concrete wall that surrounds the entire West bank. And I think Gaza has it too, but at the time that, you know, all that I had seen was the West bank. <coughs> the Palestinians essentially are, are they're, they're gated in there. You know, they're, they're stuck in there. The economy is terrible. Um, poverty is terrible. You know, it's a local government there. Um, the flow of goods in and out is, is brutal. And it was a trickle at the time. I'm sure it hasn't gotten much better. Um, and, and really they, they were protesting against their, you know, it's, it's a human rights protest essentially. Um, and, you know, while, while I don't think I could get to like the real ins and outs of it, because it's, it's kind of one of those things, the more you learn, the less you understand about it. But at the mm -hmm. same time, like there's this multi-generational struggle um, between Israelis and Palestinians, which, you know, no one really has come up with a, with a clear, solid, workable answer. Um, but in the meantime, what Israel decided to do years ago was just build a fence because in 2001, there were, um, there were gunfights constantly in the old city of Jerusalem, which is home to the three largest religions. You know, you have the, the three uh, most sacred, or I think it's the second most sacred site in Islam, but the most sacred site in Christianity and Judaism. They essentially abut each other in the old city. Um, you know, I hear stories. It's kind of like when you join the army and you hear about the generation before talking about the last war. So yeah. they would talk about, you know, other photographers that were shot and killed or, you know, in, in the old city, you know, doing their job. And, you know, to me, I looked at it with fascination, um, but I, I wanted to see it. There's plenty of it there. You know, I'd go to the old city, the Damascus Gate, which is which is one of the entrances to Al-Aqsa Mosque. You know, at the time they wouldn't let in, um, and I think it's still this way, 18 to 54 year old males. So they would do services on the street right outside the old city so there'd be protests every single week there and fights and rot and, you know between the police and, and civilians there why would they not allow 18 to 30 for 35 year old males in military age males because they're uh, <laughs> you know, violent any sort of conflict yeah uh, so they thought that was the way to do it yeah and, and all it did is make it spill over to the street you know? right and, and, you know i tell people all the time that sorry when i no, walk I through the old thing. city I would equally get harassed as much by the, you know, the, the Orthodox Jews as I would, you know, when I walk through the, the Palestinian parts of the old city, because neither of them wanted me there. Right. Um, but when I had a camera in my hand, sometimes it seemed like a lot, I, I was a lot more welcome. So I was able to go places and experience things that a lot of Westerners and even a lot of Israelis never saw. And I felt really privileged. And while it scared the hell out of me, it was really exciting. And it, it sort of like wet my appetite um, to see more, to understand more, to get the word out, to get pictures out that help people understand what was happening. And then a little while after, I guess probably a month or so after I got there, 
um, there was a soldier that was captured down in, in Gaza, an Israeli soldier. They didn't know who he was or where he was. They didn't know if he was alive or not. So Israel started amassing forces or Israeli army started amassing forces outside of Gaza and southern Israel. So we as you know, photojournalists were like, that's where we're going to go. Um, so we go down south and we're, we're standing there talking to troops, you know, hanging out, taking pictures and trying to figure out when they're going to push. And then all of a sudden we got word that there was an attack up north at the Lebanese border. And the guy I was with asked me if I wanted to go see a gunfight. And I said, sure, let's, let's do it. And then we just started driving north, passing, uh, passing the army, heading up to the border. You're over there as a complete civilian with no weapons, with only wrestling experience. You are a big dude. So you're a little, you know, you're, you're, you seem a little scarier. You're not me going into this. So, I mean, it makes sense, but at what point though, did you like, did you guys hunt? Were you exposed to guns a lot? No, the, the, the ironic thing is my, you know, my mother and father kept guns away from me when I was a kid. So like, we didn't even have toy guns. Um, I loved playing army when I was a kid. Like I always had, I knew I always had the desire to join. Like part of me always knew that I'd end up in the army. I just know how it would come about. Oh, don't tell but me that. Maybe, what's that? Because, don't tell me that. Cause Jack does oh, cause that. He's, yeah. he's like, he's like, mommy, let's play army man. I'm like, we're not playing army man See that and then I'll, what i'm gonna do is yeah play all the army you want and let me get it out of your system i don't want my three girls uh to join god you're so much smarter than me damn it i need to try that <laughs> yeah. approach um yeah but so, I, I had i went across with zero experience zero idea okay because it just seems like for most people their reaction to a gunfight is run that run the other way so when they're like hey yeah. on a whim you want to go I want to go see this. It just feels like it was a bad decision on your part. It, I mean, it, it probably, it probably was, I mean, it was probably a terrible decision. The, the, the lens I like to look at it through though, is, you know, there's a before social media and an after social media. Right. So if you wanted to understand war, if you wanted to, to understand combat and conflict, like you had to see it yourself. Like it was like this, like this taboo, right? Like it wasn't accessible. And yeah. I think that that mystique or like that mystery about war is part of what made me want to go experience it so much. Like now, I mean, look on Instagram, on Facebook now, like there's like live streaming war. It's unbelievable. You know, like there, there's a, a sanctity about combat and conflict that I feel like we're losing. Not that it, not in like a good way, but in a way that it's, it's becoming mundane. You know, there's yeah. no, like, oh, you know, I can go there. I can do this. And it's making people want to do it. That, that probably shouldn't be. But at the time, like none of that existed. You know, like I didn't know. I was reading books. I was reading every book I can get my hand on, on, on conflict to understand it. And then I knew that I just had to experience it myself. But was it smart? I don't know. Hard to say. So what happened on that day when you went up? Um, so this was... This was the first, I guess it was like the first, we ended up running into the first ground com combat of the, of the conflict. So we, we start driving up, we pick up another photographer in Israeli. So I was two Israeli photographers and me, and we're driving up to the border and it's just, it's super surreal because, you know, I'm starting to see fires. The closer we get to the border, I'm starting to see fires on the, in the fields around us. And then the closer we get, even still, I'm actually starting to see impacts now of rockets hitting around us because that's what, what Hezbollah did is they're, they're really um, 
their first push of the campaign or whatever you want to call it, the conflict, was just to fire hundreds and hundreds of rockets, you know, on the start, uh, you know, wherever they could in northern Israel. So then we start passing by, you know, troop carriers. We start passing by tanks. Um, really, the the frequency of rocket strikes are increasing. But like I said, you know, this was this was my first day. You know, I had a little bit of taste of the conflict, but I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, so we we finally got to the Lebanese border. We're just driving like a van, like just some you know regular shitty old you know 1980s mm. van. And we get to the border, we pull up to as far as we can drive, and then these soldiers open up the doors and rip up rip us out the van. So now I find myself with my two photographers. One is gone. I don't know where she went. And then I'm with one more photographer that I came up with. And we're under this like concrete enclosure. And I just hear there's just everyone's scree like everyone's barking orders. And I didn't speak Hebrew at the time. Um, I saw, you know, somebody's pointing at the hills and the mountains. And I could watch this like column of Israeli troops, you know, marching through the the uh, the mountain, like in the in southern Lebanon. And the photographer I was with was, you know, was telling me they're they're looking for the tunnels. And then meanwhile, there's two tanks. And like I said, this was like as it was developing, right? As the war mm -hmm. was, you know, with, everyone was trying to figure it out. But I could see Lebanon right in front of me. And all of a sudden, these tanks start firing into the mountains. And I, you know, once again. 21 years old, never saw war. I'm like, I'm amazed by this. Like, I'm amazed by the power and the seriousness of, of the situation. Because, you know, prior to that, I was watching on the news, you know, the, the UN Security Council was debating whether or not to condemn Israel. You know, I'm watching like the world talking about this. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm at the front. I'm at the start of this. I'm at the front of this. Like, this is powerful. Um, mm -hmm. So it was a lot to take into like my, my very immature mind, what, what was happening around me. No context of trauma, no context of safety, no context of, you know, when you go to war, you know, when you join the army, you, you have this whole, um, you know, RSOI when you get in the country, you know, your reception, mm -hmm. something onward integration, essentially like getting you ready. You're mentally ready. You've got your guys with you. Um, you got your support system with you. You deploy together. You come home together. I went with no preparation no idea what I was getting into. So I'm really just, I'm on like full receive mode, just taking everything in. And, you know, we're every, every so often you start hearing whistling in the distance and then you'd hear an impact and then whistling distance and you'd hear an impact. I didn't really think too much, too much of it until the day sort of progressed and the tank, uh, the tank started firing more and more. Maybe it was Paladins. I don't know really what it was. I was too young to really have any idea. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, the, the rockets got started getting closer and closer. You know, I was walking up to the border at one point there had a medic with me, but I only knew cause he, you know, he had the Israeli mm -hmm. medics at the time were wearing like the red cross. Um, and we were walking up to the border. I don't even know why I was just trying to get closer to get good pictures. Um, and then a how rocket much closer do you need to be my dude? <laughs> I didn't know. I had no answer. Right. Like I, I truly had no idea. Huh. Um, uh, but I mean, the, the crazy thing was there was a Pulitzer Prize uh, photojournalist who was with us. I didn't know at the time, but he got a Pulitzer during that conflict, during that couple of weeks. Wow. Um, I didn't get any Pulitzer Prize winning photos. But the first time I started walking to the border, a rocket impacts um, a close enough to feel the heat and kind of knock us back. And we ran back to like the little concrete enclosure we were at. And then the, the, the strikes increased in frequency. You started hearing the whistles by the dozens. 
you know, I spent a lot of the time just face down in the dirt, just trying, just hoping I didn't die. Um, and then we actually had to bound back um, before I knew what bounding was, you know, bound between buildings, uh, because mm -hmm. then what we heard was there was, you know, sniper firing coming at a time. And we had to figure out how to get out of there. And like, we get like three houses, four houses back. And we walk into this building and it's full of news, like, uh, like television journalists, like Sky News is there at ABC and CNN. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Like, it was, it was just like super surreal. Um, and then because the, the valley we were in started getting flooded with smoke and more rocket fire. And then so, so we left. And that night I'm watching it on the news. The next day we get up in the morning, we try to head back there and the, it's just smoked out. So we can't even get in. And then I'm, it kind of felt like, um, you ever seen We Were Soldiers? You know, the, the end of the yep. movie when, when Joe Galloway is standing on the DZ or the LZ and there's journalists that are getting off the helicopter and they start like freaking out when, when they start hearing uh, uh, firing. Mm -hmm. And he's like, don't worry, it's outgoing. Like I had that very distinct, like I, I remember seeing that in my head, you know, as I, I pulled up there and these other like Sky News photographers were coming up and super um, like shady like, but <laughs> yeah, it was really shady. more of that. We, we were just, um, we spent the next few weeks just, you know, going town to town, chasing rockets. And, you know, we had lots of close calls. There was times when it got bad enough where, I'd have to cover my ears while I was driving, while we were driving, because I didn't want to hear the air sirens anymore. Like it would, it was, it would trigger like this, this panic in me, um, like this impending kind of death. Like there were other photographers around me that were either getting killed or getting injured because they would pack the rockets with ball bearings and shrapnel. So mm -hmm. when it hit, um, it would pierce you. So it got really bad for me. Um, we were in bomb shelters, taking pictures of, you know, kids and families and, We'd be at buildings, you know, taking pictures of one rocket strike and the air siren would go off, be gone. It was very, it was very intense for a very short period of time. Um, and it never got mundane to me. Oh yeah, people always say that, that, that war can kind of get mundane and I'm sure sometimes it does, but for me, it, it, it was terrifying. Yeah, it, the, the war there, maybe because it was so quick, um, it, was, it only lasted for 34 days, super short conflict. But it was terrifying every time to me, every time I heard that air siren. And I mean, I could be in a group of a couple hundred people outside. I remember very, very vividly, we were outside in an apartment complex and there was probably 200 people out there because the, the building got hit and they were afraid of the, the um, I guess the gas line. So the mayor was there trying to talk to reporters, explain what was happening and everyone else is gathered around this building. And all of a sudden the air siren goes off and everyone starts running around and screaming and then you know, it, they give you 10 seconds. It's a 10 second early warning or this was pre iron dome, you know, pre really you just, you heard the, you heard the siren and you knew it was going to hit and you just had to get down. And I just remember this like super eerie silence, just being in a crowd of like a couple hundred people, um, just laying on the ground, like waiting and hoping not to get struck by, by rock, a rocket. Um, yeah, it was just a lot of that. It was, it was just a surreal terrifying exciting incredible miserable experience you know all the all the emotions all wrapped in one and that was my first my first time going to war and i came home and there was no reception there was no like reintegration there was no mental health support it was just drinking you know? is that what happened oh yeah uh it took me to go to sleep every night i had a drink nearly a bottle of a bottle of booze um yeah i was I was getting constant flashbacks. I was super jumpy. Um, and, and this was, 
I didn't know what PTSD was at the time. Like nobody had ever explained that. It wasn't like a, I guess, 06, you know, we started the, we went to Afghanistan 01, but I don't even remember if the conversation was being had publicly about it. So I didn't really know what was happening to me. I just knew I was having constant nightmares and jumpy and I was getting angry constantly. Um, I was pissed off at everyone and everything. I didn't know why. Um, and I just drank a lot and I became an insomniac shortly after that. And then life kind of went on for a few years, you know. The um when you when you look back at when you're looking back at that and how you were how you were handling everything, it's you know, it's I think it's pretty clear you were you were struggling, but did you find that you struggled more because you were in a place that looked like war shouldn't be happening? Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's that it's that again in Israel and in with the Palestinians and everything, everybody just goes about their life. Like it's perfectly normal until it's not. Yeah, I just I wonder coming back to another Western type place, if it just was too similar in a lot of aspects, like it could have happened over there easily. The, I guess there's kind of two things on that. You know, one is the crazy thing about Israel is I could be up at the, at the front in Southern Lebanon. And then I I'd, I'd drive two hours down South of Jerusalem and everybody was living life like normal, like bars and clubs were open and people yeah. were just, you know, people were just living their lives. Um, but I came home and I think what I really struggled with was lack of connection. Um, and I, I struggled with a lack of understanding. So I had just been through this you know, extremely, not tr yes, traumatic, but more just a significant emotional event. And I was around people that were so far removed from what I just experienced that I couldn't connect with anyone around me. So my body's response was just anger. You know, I was just, mm. I was, whenever I hear someone talking about something I thought was trivial, I'd get just pissed and I would just sit there and stew until I could have another drink. So that, that's for, for me, what it was, was having experienced this, this really powerful event and not being able to share it with anyone, you know? Yeah, that's, that, I mean, that makes sense. I can completely uh, empathize with that, but what made you want to go from, and how do you go from drinking a bottle a night to, to the military? I mean, that just doesn't, again. And contracting, I don't, I don't, I, you're doing it backwards, Phil. <laughs> I know, I know, I, I don't know. So I, I think what had happened is that kind of the seed had been planted. You know, you get a taste of that drug, like, like a heroin addict, right? Like yeah. it doesn't take more than, you know, a couple, like a once or twice of using for someone to get addicted to, you know, a powerful drug. And I think that's what war is like for, I don't know about for most people, but at least for me, um, because I remember coming back from the front lines and, I remember being in this jazz club with this girl I was seeing in Israel and I was just like laying on her lap in the club I and mean, nobody was there. We're just in this like corner booth. And I just, I felt like this peace. Right. And I was terrified of going back like I, about, cause I knew the next day I was going to get back in the car and drive back up to, up to the border. And I was terrified, but I did it every time I kept going back. Like I couldn't, I couldn't align that within myself. Like there was this crazy cognitive dissonance but my gut kept saying, get in the car and go, like, go taste it, mm. you know, go experience it. And I think the same thing that that feeling sort of stuck with me. Right. So then I had this hankering for this drug. I had this hankering for this experience that the only way to recapture it was to go back to war, put myself in that situation again. So I almost stayed in Israel. Um, someone asked me if I wanted to stay and join the army. And I thought about it seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, but my parents, uh, said I needed to finish college first and you know, there, there's a lot of, uh, 
there's a lot of wisdom in that. So I finished, I finished my two years that I had left. And then I said, you know, I still, I still want to go though. I still want to go back. So I don't know if it's as a, as a soldier, but I, I want to go back. So I ended up finding a mentor. I was contacted with a lot of uh, photojournalists from the early days of Iraq um, who I, I admire their photos. And I wanted to ask, you know, I wanted mentors to, to help me figure out how to do it. My primary mentor was this, he was the head photographer, head photojournalist for Army Times. And I picked his brain nonsense. I, there was Associated Press photographers I was talking to at the same time who recommended books, who chat me about my photos. You know, one helped me create my website at the time, like really helping me in a lot of ways. But when it came to getting back overseas, which is what I knew I wanted to do, they kept saying, look, unless you have someone guaranteeing to pay your insurance and you're way overseas and to buy your photos, you're wasting your time. You know, they'd tell me stories about guys getting shot and being hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt because they tried to go overseas and take pictures, but not have the support system in place. So mm -hmm. I just kept grinding, kept applying for jobs, but you know, the newspaper market crashed. Nobody was hiring anybody. So finally, I found this job working for the army as a, as a contractor, um, taking pictures. So that sounds great. Perfect. Um, did that job for a year, made some really good connections, got invited a couple times uh, overseas, you know, to Afghanistan and Iraq. But every time I got an invitation, my boss uh, put the kibosh on it. So I got really, um, I got really angry and really depressed. And I knew that the only reason, the only way I was going to get back overseas uh, was to join. And I, you know, I always wanted to join. So it seemed like a perfect time, you know, like the, the, the stars were aligning and that's the way that I was being propelled. So, so then I joined, I went in and, you know, pursued combat arms and made my way into special operations, you know, and kind of wet, wet my, wet my palate again, you know. But why special operations? Why not just joining the army? Why? So why? I was, I was terrible at the politics game. So I, I, mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to go in as an officer. Um, I, and I had my degree. I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be a leader. I wanted to have that responsibility. I wanted to. I wanted the pressure of that job. I wanted to test myself and, you know, keeping calm, cool and collected in, in really dangerous situations. And I, and I knew I'd already been in it. So I knew I could, or I thought I could do it at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I knew I wanted to go that route. And then, you know, I joined and within my first year, I got a letter of reprimand from brigade commander. Like I'm, I just, I just didn't, I didn't fit the mold you know, politics wise, you know, I, I'd be boozing and, and getting drunk with my dudes every weekend and um, getting in trouble with them like that. I, I was the same age as my NCOs and I felt more uh. to my, you know, my NCOs and I did to, to fellow officers. And I realized that if I were to stay in conventional army, I was in the CAV and I, I loved, I loved running missions in the CAV. Like it was a lot of fun for me. But when you're just constantly training for a mission that, you know, I was never going to do in the sense that, um, that we trained, you know, I wanted to go do a job on a small team, you know, where, where we led as equals, where we were trusted with a lot of responsibility in places that I knew I was going to do my job. And that's, mm -hmm. that's really what I was looking for. Um, so that saw, you know, even after I was, you know, I was a special operations civil affairs officer. And once I was selected, I still gave it a few days. I wasn't even sure I was going to accept it as I was, I still didn't know if that's what I wanted. So, you know, they called up, they're like, Hey, when do you want to go? You're in and you just sign this that you accept. And I was like, well, I'm not ready to do that. So I, I talked to my buddy that was a, it was a special forces officer. 
And I was like, man, I'm, I'm really on the fence here. Like, I don't, I don't know if this is what I want to do or not. I do know that I couldn't keep going to the national training center and doing these big, like force on force rotations, like big army versus big army and, mm-hmm. and stand in front of a formation of a hundred something dudes and tell them this was a valuable mission because I don't believe in that. So right. I knew I had to leave conventional army. Uh, but I didn't know if, if, you know, CA was the, was the right move for me, but I honestly, I just made a list pros and cons. Like I wrote down the pros, I wrote down the cons, the pros were larger than the cons. And I, and I went and that was it, you know, and I made, I made what I could of it. I, I love the mentality with it. Just write it down. Sometimes you just need to write it down. You need to put it on paper. You need to take a look at it. You need to see it for what it is. And then you can make a clear, concise decision. I think that's a, a good takeaway from that. But you broke yeah. your back pretty damn bad. Like yeah. you just wrecked yourself. I did. Yeah, this was 2015. Um, two weeks away from selection, actually. I was, I, was on, uh, I was on staff and I was in charge of running um, the first, it was the first uh, MGS gunnery, the strikers with the big tanks on it. And we were out in the field and I was proofing a range, like super dumb way to get hurt, right? It's not like I was doing anything heroic or courageous. Nothing cool cool at all. I was literally riding in a striker and I was standing on the, on the seat because nobody sits when you're TCing. So you're standing and then I stood up on the ledge of the seat and it's like this curved aluminum or metal seat. And I was trying to see this, this far target, couldn't see it, got up my tippy toes like an idiot. Um, and then my, I don't I think I slipped or the gun or restraint harness pulled me down or something. My feet went up in the air, two, three feet. And then my lumbar, my lower back just crunched on the, uh, on the metal. Um, and then I'm just laying down on the bottom of the, of the, the belly of the striker, just in the worst pain I've ever been in, in my life. Just, you know, I'm with, I'm with like this, uh, I think it was an E-fire staff sergeant was with me and he was, he was my gunner, helped me proof the range. He's like, oh, are you all right down there? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not. I don't know what happened, but I'm not all right. So I laid there for probably about 20 minutes. And they were still, my, my, my master gunner was out there and the other striker. And they're still proofing the range. And I'm like, well, this is, this is what it is. I, just, I need to get up and do this. So then at, with a broken back, I stood up and I proofed the range for another two hours before we got off. Just in like unbearable pain, but uh, just I guess I just like didn't want to be the one to, to ruin it or call it off. Like a, it's like that stupid, like push through the pain mentality. So did that for two hours, came off the range and I knew something was like terribly wrong with my back. And they, through screaming pain, they had dragged me to the back of the striker, strapped me into a seat and I'm bumping up and down for another two hours on a, on a broken spine or a broken, two broken vertebrae to get back You're to it. so lucky you're walking. You're so oh my God, it was lucky terrible. you can walk it was still. It was, it was terrible. It was the worst pain I've ever been in. And, you know, there was supposed oh. to be a couple of medics waiting for us. We got some motor pool and no medics were there. So, um, Somebody pulled up, one of the guys we were with went and got his car. He had this little like two-seater coupe, like super low to the ground. And it took three guys, it took me like a good 15 minutes to build up the, the fortitude for somebody to touch me, to move me. Cause it was in, so, I was in such unbearable pain by that point, but they got me into the car and they drove me to the hospital in his little coupe. And then it took another four nurses to get me out of the car into a wheelchair. And then that, that was it. They came in, they, you know, I thought that was my career was done. Um, they came in, told me I, I had uh, two clean fractures and uh, I think it was L2, L3. I ended up going home and I was on my back on the couch, couldn't move for a solid eight, nine days and couldn't even sit up. 
and I had to call up the recruiter and tell him I had to push my selection dates, push it about three months. Um, I went from laying on the couch to a walker. And then from a walker, I had a cane. And then from a cane, I started walking. And then I went to a physical therapist who got me jogging again. And I went to selection as the slowest dude there, like without question. Like I could hardly keep up in the runs and the rocks. I was in brutal pain. It took two, three guys to get me off the ground every time we, you know, we stopped when we were rucking. I was icing like crazy. But I was selected, I guess, because of my, my, you know, my confidence and personality. And that was it. I would argue your perseverance and your ability to do it. And cause you, you know, no doubt in their mind, did they not know they knew you had a broken back? Not that long ago. They're like, this guy is going to give it a go anyway. Uh, what an all right. Idiot. If he can get through it, he's in for sure. Because if anybody yeah. that, that shows such character in a human being, especially to people that you're going to be serving alongside and the idea that you can stick it out if you're hurting at that level and still fight through it, it shows the person you are. So I can see why you were selected. You can be slow. It's fine. We'll forgive you. It's it's acceptable. Um, I appreciate that. Well, yeah, it's no worries. Um, Okay. We go to selection and then you started your first deployment. I think you said was 2012. So Lead me up to that because your parents are both your parents Jewish. Yeah. Okay. Like, are we talking like strict? No, no, I'm practicing. Okay. So I don't, I don't, I don't practice it anymore. I'm, I'm more of a Buddhist than anything at this point. I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm go by the synagogue, but we were, we were I, more culturally Jewish, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think we gather that you're not, you're, you're yeah, definitely the tattoos more- are a, a straight giveaway. It's a straight giveaway. But I ask because, I mean, your your family, I want to say, let you go when you were younger off to a, a war zone that I'm sure I don't even know that they realized you were, you know, really participating in. And then to see you, fuzzy, to see you um, come out of that and then come home and struggle because they had to have caught on that you were struggling when you came home. I mean, were you yeah. living at home when the drinking was as ex- excessive as it was? Um, I mean, I'd, I'd be at home for stretches at a time. Yeah. Uh, I don't, <clears throat> I don't know if they, I'm sure they could tell I was off. Like that's when I think of like the birth of my trauma, like mm-hmm. ground zero trauma, it, it was that summer for sure. So I'm, I'm yeah. sure that they, they had an idea, but yeah, for like their, you know, their Jewish boy to, to go to war, you know, when I was over there, I, I didn't tell them, um, what I was doing. They just saw my pictures start to hit the news and they realized where I was. Mm-hmm. But I would call them. I remember calling them uh, from a landline at this motel on the border um, that was abandoned because everybody had evacuated. And I said, like, yeah, everything's fine. Um, everything's good up here. Just I'm in Jerusalem, you know, no worries. I had the photographer I was with take a picture of me in an olive field that just looked like really pretty and serene. And I sent that to them. And, and that was it. Like that was then when I came home, you know, I still didn't um, I still didn't really tell. I've only told like a lot of the stories, a couple people, but you know, they knew, you know, including my parents, yeah, but they knew that, um, that something was off, I think, but it wasn't, yeah, I followed, I followed a very non-traditional route as both, um, you know, a soldier and as, um, a Jewish kid, you know? Yeah. Cause I mean, it's, like I said, it's one thing to send them the photos and let them play off of that idea. But it's another thing where they think, okay, maybe that part of his life is over. 
And then he decides to go through selection and then he starts deploying. And this time he's not just deploying with a camera. So what walk me through what that was like first time you went on a deployment. Yeah. So, I mean, my, so my very first deployment in the army was, was cutter. Um, so that was, that was pretty low key. It was nine months of just staring at the sand in the desert. So that was, that was pretty uh, miserable for me, but they were happy because they knew I wasn't in a, in a you know, combat zone. Right. Uh, the, the first soft deployment though, that's what I used to tell people. I was like, man, I, I saw my combat in as a civilian and then I joined the army and I, you know, I went to a peacetime country. So that, that was interesting. But, um, yeah, when I first went to Jordan as a team leader, um, also they, they didn't have as much concern because once again, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a war zone, but it was, I, I loved it. I had a great time that deployment. It, it really got to get my, my feet wet as a, you know, special operations you know, officer having a team of, you know, me and three people and essentially a really, really long leash to do whatever I wanted to do in country, which was great for me. So I got to go where I wanted to do, go talk to, who I wanted to talk to, you know, build reports of things that I thought were important. Um, I met a lot of incredible people, had a lot of like really wild experiences there. Um, Cause the cool thing about civil affairs is you can make it what you want. You focus what you want, go where you want, talk to who you want. So like I was able to go to, you know, Joffer, which is a town, there was a couple of green berets killed there. I think it was 2015, maybe 16. And nobody had been back there. So I said, well, why the hell are we ignoring this town, you know, in Southern Jordan that we've seen, we've, you know, we've seen issues and we, I want to know if it's safe to still travel there. So I went and made a trip down there and talked to the mayor and, and you know, toured around and stuff like that was, was really exciting to me. It was really interesting to me, you know, going down to the, to the Saudi border and, you know, looking for, you know, for, for people to talk to and understanding what the, what the culture is like and understanding, you know, what's happening in that town. Is there nefarious activity? You know, talking to people that felt, um, you know, under, undervalued by their government and, you know, what, what kind of seeds were being planted around the country. Like, I, I love that deployment for a lot of different reasons than people would probably, you know, think of when it came to soft deployment. I really like how you worded that. I really appreciate how you worded that. I like to go around and find people that were feeling undervalued by their government. Just plant some seeds. That shit is hilarious. And anybody else who is listening to that, yeah. you, you know how brilliantly worded that was. That's like the time I had tangent. That's like the time I went to a dinner with uh, Defenders of Freedom. And they yeah. had, I think it was like a general there or guy ran like the special ops army for, I don't even know how long. And he had more medals than that I could count. And he said a line and I've never stopped talking about it. He's in the room of all these really wealthy donors at a golf dinner. And he goes, and he's just showing the slides and he goes, <laughs> I am very proud of my men. Every night we would go out and prosecute at least 10 to 30. <laughs> prosecute. Yeah, yeah, I love it. It's so cute. But so you're essentially going around gathering human intel. Is that where you were? So what is that what was important to you? Was so yeah, we were we were information collectors. So you know we weren't intel folks, which which was really cool to just be an information collector because then we pass it on to people who who would turn it into intelligence. So so mm -hmm. for us, you know the 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 window was wide open. You know the aperture was super wide, and it also allowed us access to places. You know, people aren't going to let an intel collector in to go you know, into their house, you know, with their no. with their friends, but they'll let in a civil affairs guy who's here to, you know, maybe give out some backpacks or, you know, help, you know, help construct something for them. You know, were you in civilian clothes? 
Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Yeah, my, I'm gonna say. So, yeah, Syria. We wore both. You know, depending on the situation. But when I was in Jordan, yeah, it was all always civilian clothes, which is great. You know, because then you can, you know, you dress how you want to be received, right? Like if I if I was going someplace, I wanted to be a super casual engagement. I wear a pair of jeans and a t-shirt, or jeans and like a you know a, a nice. Mm-hmm or like a, you know, casual button down. And then guess what? They showed up in the same. And then we had a nice, we'd walk around, walk around town and talk and eat. And so it's important. Like about, yeah. And I think it's important to, to talk about that too, because so many people, when they listen, they, you hear them talk about gunfights in Afghanistan when they're fully kitted out, they don't, and they're special ops, right. But you don't hear necessarily a lot as many of the stories of like, no, this is, this is actually how we walked around as some special ops humans. Yeah. Like we, we looked at the, the world in a different way because I had a conversation recently um, with an individual coming on the show, um, Hamidi. He wrote a book called The Terrorist Whisperer and he was an Iraqi kid who ended up working for the Americans. But what I found really fascinating was talking to him about how people walked around because I always pictured before I understood some sides of the military when I was now that I'm out, I'm, I understand more now than I did then. I didn't understand that how people could just walk in and out of people's houses, but in like full, full kit and uniform and like full rifle. And like, I, and now I'm like, Oh wait, that's cause they don't, they yeah. walk around with beards and look like locals and have conversations and don't look like they're from the military at all. I think that's a, that's an awesome point. I feel like that's kind of one that's not talked about very much because, you know, it's not, it's not sexy, right? Like, so the, the things that I no. did in Jordan, none of it is sexy. Like I, I wasn't wearing like kitted up with a big, you know, operator beard with my, you know, rifle with, you know, crazy optics and shit on. No, it was just like, a, I looked like a regular dude. I worked in the embassy twice a week. I go to the embassy and have meetings and the rest of the time I'd be out and about in the country and I wear my regular clothes. Like I'd be wearing to, you know, go have a casual business lunch here or something. Um, but the, the cool thing about that is that I could also sit with, with a mayor, right. In a, in a town that um, he felt was not getting attention from the government. And I would get there and we talk and talk and talk and have tea and, and have cookies and walk around. He'd show me things and tell me about what he wants and, Hours and hours. I remember I was an hour, eight or nine with, with one of the mayors that I was a partner with. And after so many hours of really just creating a friendship with him, creating you know, a relationship with him, he started just telling me all these things that are under the surface, you know, that, that like our embassy should know, that their government should know, that, you know, people above this dude should understand that there's, you know, there's a pressure cooker in this town. And if it continues to be ignored, then there's going to be issues within could be a year, could be five years, but I couldn't have gotten that information if I had walked in with, you know, a rifle, walked in in uniform and, and combat boots and all that shit, like walking in like a normal person, talking to someone like a normal person, treating them as equals, you know, not that I'm coming as a representative from the American government, which I was, but I'm just a guy that just wants to talk and understand. And I was able to, you know, get information about places that helps affect U.S. foreign policy in that country. And if you think about that, it's like a, from a strategic standpoint, that's huge, way more effective than a bullet, you know, but it's not sexy. So it doesn't really get talked about that much. And I think it's interesting to see how effective it can be. There's a lot of people now, when I'm starting to pull out these conversations, I, you know, I ask like, can you send me some photos? And 
a lot of time now I'm starting to get the photos that are just them in, in Afghanistan, but you can't tell really the difference between an Afghani and them. Yeah. And there's this, this slight understanding that if you meet someone at, meet them where they are, meaning don't show up with a huge rifle and, and give them a little bit of respect and understanding it's going to go so much further, but I Absolutely. wonder I wonder, is that a fault of what we do? Do you think to an extent when we go into these countries, is it because we go in so heavy militarized and we look that way, we walk that way, we talk that way that people don't want to want to have a conversation with us because we're so separated. It's kind of a, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like we, we go in a certain way and we create that environment, the environment that we bring with us. You know, I think, Mm. I think that's to me what impressed me so much about soft. And that's what I enjoyed so much about soft is that you work on a small enough team where, you know, you and your team sergeant, you know, your chief, your SF, like if, if you guys will decide, you know, what you want, what kind of tone you want to set, you decide what you're wearing. You decide what you're going to carry in the meetings. You decide how big your security element is, how many guys you're going to bring into a room, where you go, who you talk to. Like to me in conventional army, you're, you're never going to avoid that because you're not going to be able to put a you know a battalion in, in civilian clothes and have them interact. Um, but in special operations, like I think that's the beauty of it is you can accomplish a lot, um, with a few guys doing it the way that they think is best, you know, cause they're that mission command aspect at trust level. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I was able to run a town council meeting on the tri-border area of Jordan, which was wild, you know, it's Iraq, Jordan, and Syria. Um, and I told them, I just wanted to speak to their council and I walked in there and then I ended up running it. And like, that was, it was very surreal to me to be like sitting at this table you know, they were all asking me, like, what did I want to talk about? Who did I want to ask questions to? Like, what kind of, what we wanted to curate there? And I couldn't have done that if I had walked in with this, like, massive security element cordoned off the area. You know, like, we just walked in. You know, we just started having a regular conversation as people. You know, obviously, do we have security? Yes, all the time. It just looks different, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you think that if you didn't have that experience going over in your initial you know, war journey. Cause I don't know what to call it other than your, your, your want to see action. We were when you were younger. Yeah. Do you think that if you didn't have that, you wouldn't have been able to walk into those situations the same? Yeah. A hundred percent. You know, I, I remember there was this time in, uh, in seer school. It's like that this addresses just what you're asking. Cause I remember the first time that, you know, day one in, in, in conflict in Israel, I was scared shitless. And, you know, it comes that, that, you know, fight or flight, I was in straight flight mode. I was just in survival mode. And then I, I'd always wondered, you know, from that point forward, what it would be like when I went back and I was in a situation where I, you know, I had to be cool. You know, I had to be nice and calm and collected. And in senior school gave me an opportunity to, to practice that. And I could tell that in the years from, uh, from going to war for the first time to, uh, being in a situation where I had to experience something similar, you know, adrenaline wise and danger wise that I, that I had evolved, I had progressed. And that experience being overseas, you know, especially in you know, being around that Middle Eastern culture, going back as a, as a soldier, it honestly felt really easy. You know, it, it felt comfortable. It felt natural. Um, and it, it really honestly just felt like humans connecting with other humans. And that's, that's my favorite. You know, that's, that's my bread and butter. That's what I enjoy. Do you think that if our conventional fighting force were to put a little more effort into integrating, I was like cultural attaches a little more, we would have as much pushback from the public when we go into an area. 
I mean, I guess it depends what that looks like, right? I remember like first deployment, like our cultural education was so slim, like it was disgusting. Like I would, I would never, it was like a pamphlet and I think we watched a video or something and like that, mm-hmm. that was it. Um, you know, that, that, yeah, that's a tough one. You know, even at the embassy, like we, I remember we, there was constant discussions about that. And you've got, you got your defense attache who's trying to set the tone, who's really just wrangling you know, the random soft, at least in Jordan, just wrangling the random soft characters that were running around trying to, trying to do, trying to do soft. Hurting you know, so cats. I, I, yeah, exactly. I, I, I honestly, I don't know. I think maybe it comes to, as a, as a military, we need more informed culturally, but I don't know, does, does an infantryman, you know, in a, in a big rifle battalion really need to know the language? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. You know, does he need to understand culture? Yeah, to, to a limited aspect, but I guess it depends on the conflict that dude may or may not be face to face, you know, in a, a sure in Afghanistan or wherever the next conflict is like, it, it could be a squad leader. Who's the face mm-hmm. of who's the face of the U S army in that place. You know, there's, so yeah, it's a tough one. That's tough. I think everyone should be more culturally aware personally, but right. as an army, it's tough to say, I guess. I'm always interested because we, we were given such limited information. At least I was given such limited information also in a French pamphlet that I can read. Um, so <laughs> It yeah, felt exactly. real culturally <laughs> dialed in to go into that country. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, I learned so many things the hard way. Oh, <laughs> so bad. Um, okay, so so you go from doing that, and that deployment was essentially that the whole way was was communications, conversations, and and just gathering information and and planting seeds. Yeah, really, it was it, bridging the gap between what was happening um, in the like the smaller districts or the lower, le- lower levels of the government mm-hmm. between what they're seeing at the embassy and what they're seeing in the higher levels of the Jordanian government. So I was, I was, you know, I, an interlocutor really between the military and, and government and civilians on ground. After that deployment, how was your drinking? Uh, oh, dude, we were, we were drinking constantly um, when we were there. I could, I spent most of my career in, in and out of alcoholism, like pretty serious alcoholism. I remember I was, I was talking to a psych at one point before that deployment. I said, I don't think I'm an alcoholic, but I do this, this, and the other thing. And she literally laughed at me uh, when I said that. Um, I guess she couldn't contain um, you know, how funny it was that I didn't think I was. Or just how uh, ridiculous that- it sounded. Yeah, how ridiculous it sounded that I wasn't, you know, everyone around me was drinking heavily, bless you. Thanks. Everyone around me was, was, we were heavy drinkers, you know, we were drinking on deployment, we were drinking before deployment, we were drinking heavily, we got back from deployment. Uh, so that that was sort of a constant. Um, yeah, it, it sort of never stopped. It was just part of our, part of our culture, I guess. Is it, was it just you? So they all, everyone else around you drank, but were you seeing signs in anybody else or were you able to see signs in yourself and anybody else of struggle? No, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, no, I don't think so really for the most part, you know, because I guess I had my yoga practice. I have my yoga practice, my meditation practice, my spiritual practice, you know, I've had American Yogi for years. So I guess I, I justified it in like this, this very, you know, twisted way where it's okay that I, that I drink because I also have this really spiritual practice. So it balances out. Um, But really all I was doing at the time was, was numbing and, um, you know, making sure I didn't have to think about all the things that for years I had never come to terms with. 
when did you deploy again? Uh, my last deployment was, uh, I want to say it was 2019 or 2020 to Syria. Can you walk me through what Syria was like? Because Syria, for many people, they I don't think they fully understand Syria. If I'm if I'm honest, I, I've had conversations where people, some people don't realize that anything has happened in Syria. Some people don't understand the severity of some of the things that have happened there in recent years. So if you could walk me through a little bit of that. Yes, Syria Syria is a, a frustrating one, or can be a frustrating one, um, really, when you talk to people about it, because a lot of people don't know that we're in Syria or they're not aware that we're in Syria or in Syria still, or a lot of soldiers don't even know what we're doing there. A lot of soldiers that are there don't even know what we're doing there. So that, I mean, that's a really common, uh, a common thing. I, before deployment was trying to figure out what the hell we were doing there and what I was going to be doing there and why I was doing those things there. Um, but I think I had the advantage of, so I, I was an operations chief. So, you know, when we were there, there was, there was a special forces side of the house and civil affairs side of the house. And there was an operations chief that was, that, that was kind of my partner over there. And we were uh, coordinating operations across where we could operate in Syria. So for me, I had to do a lot of research and a lot of talking with the guys that were there trying to understand it because the mission was changing constantly. Like, like when I say constantly, I, I legitimately... From week to week before we deployed, the mission set was changing. The, um, you know, our mission statement was changing. The, where we can go, what we could do, why we were doing those things was changing constantly. So, you know, it's a it's a soft mission. Um, so it's it's very adaptive. It's very uh, fluid. It's got it's very small small unit driven. You know, the guys that are on the ground are really driving what's what's happening there. You know, on, on the military side at least. So I went there as a captain in a major seat, which was which was pretty daunting. You know, the, to sit down with the with the uh, battalion commander and and have a talk about whether or not they were going to put me in charge of operations in, in Syria for for civil affairs um, as a captain. But I guess I had shown myself enough in my prior deployment where they trusted me to do the job. And um, we got there, and it, from day one, it was just this ambiguous mission set where you could know what you were doing and who you were talking to one day and then the next day it was different and it was it was it was changing constantly um the the coolest thing about that trip was the was the couple things that you know because a lot of people that have listened to this have they've been to war they've probably been to some have been to syria afghanistan iraq so you know, they know patrols are like, they know what it's like to do, you know, to run missions. They know what it's like to deal with both, you know, uh, good guys and bad guys. But the thing that when I tell people about Syria, I tell them about the two things that I'm most proud of that I've done in my entire career. And they happened in Syria. And one of which was, um, one of which was getting supplies for people that really needed it that no one was, um, no one was really paying attention to, um, I wish I could. I wish I could say a little more, but you know, I was able to help out women and children in a way that they really needed it. That when I encountered them, it, it kind of wrecked me. Um, yeah. You know, I went home and I cried that night when I when I encountered that situation. And I came home and I was able to make some phone calls and bring you know twenty thousand dollars worth of supplies to people that really needed it because Good I thought they needed it. So that was that was amazing. That was something I was, was really proud of. And then the other thing I was able to do in Syria. Um, that I'm, I'm really proud of. And I've actually, the first time I told this story was in Peru on the floor of the bathroom in our Maloka telling Jesse Gould, 
um, and uh, and Maddie, our facilitator, because it was a story. It was a story that came out at the end of um, my final ayahuasca journey that I was really proud of, and I never told anybody about. And they encouraged me to tell my stories, and I said, "Well, you know, I feel pretty safe right now. Can I tell you?" And I told them this story. Good. So I'm really glad you asked. So when I was, we were, we were living on this tiny fire base and there was only, I guess, a hundred or so people there. And we had this barber there and he, you know, was a Kurd and I went for my first haircut. And, you know, if you've been overseas, you've gotten your haircut by locals or, you know, encountered locals that were selling tea or food or whatever, you know, at some point they're going to ask you about getting them to America or in your case, I'm sure you heard, can you get me to Canada? Right. Everybody asks was, it, right? I was with the British. So no, I actually, oh, okay. I, yeah, I was with the British when I was encountering um, Afghanis when I was actually outside the wire. I was, um, I was their female CST. So no, it was, it was very much though. It was more of, it was more of, uh, can the women, like, can I help the women? Can I, what can I get the women? Yeah. It was, it was that conversation for me, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And honestly, that's, that, that's why I helped out the women that I could, like, I'm a self-proclaimed feminist. And like, when I see, you know, women and children that are, that are in, um, in dire need, like I, I, that's where my heart is. Right. Um, so I'm sitting in the barber chair right? and I, I, I speak, or at least I spoke enough Arabic at the time to be able to have a conversation with him. And he was asking me about getting him to America. And I was like, look, dude, like I've heard that question so many times before in all my deployments and I blew them off every single time. Right. I said, look, dude, I'm just, you know, I'm really low on the totem pole. There's no way I can help you, man. I'm just, I'm just one guy. I don't have that kind of sway. And I said, I'll write you a letter though. And he's like, he takes out his phone and he like holds it up to me. He's like, swipe, swipe, swipe. And it's letter after letter, letter after letter. And there must've been 10, 15 letters there from majors, from, um, you know, there's a colonel on there. There was you know, NCOs and all over the place. And I was like, well, shit, I, I can't blow this guy off again. You know, I've done this to multiple people. Other people have done this to him and other people like him. Um, maybe I can do something. So I told him, I'll see what I can do. And thankfully, like my job at the time was to, was to essentially inform our government what was happening in, in Syria. So I had weekly calls with the State Department and USAID. And I was, I'd informed them of what we were working on, what we were seeing on ground, you know, kind of projects we were putting in place. And then they would talk to me about what it is that they wanted to do, their initiatives or things that they were working on. Um, and because they weren't in country anymore after 2019 Operation Peace Spring, everybody pulled back. Um, so I said, you know what, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So I went back and I, I sent a text to, to my counterpart, who was a State Department employee. And I said, hey, I've got a guy here. Um, he's been working for the U.S. for a while, like working for the troops, um, constantly threatened. You know, these, these guys got shot at constantly coming to and from our, our, our base and other bases around there. Can we help him? He said, I'll see what I can do. He contacts his buddy at Department of Homeland Security. And then this is like weeks and weeks later, comes back to me and says, hey, there's a program. It exists. Nobody uses it. Nobody knows about it. But we found out about it. Let's do it. So he said, I'm going to start sending you information. You come back to me. So this is like a couple of weeks go by, a couple more weeks go by, start sending pictures and, you know, live driver's license and information and having him answer questions. And I'm like the middleman between, you know, my barber and, and <laughs> the government, DHS. And all, all the while we start getting work done in our team house as our team house was like super old and busted. It, it changed hands between, you know, bad actors, 
regime, mm -hmm. oil workers, you know, wherever. So it was all busted up and nasty and we just needed to, we needed to do some work to it to make it livable. One of the guys that was working on our house was just this sweet, sweet man. Like I, I would talk to him every day and I'd roll cigarettes for him and, and make coffee for him. And we sit out back and he would tell me about his life. And he was, he loved speaking to an American that, that spoke his language. And he was just this beautiful, beautiful soul. And at one point he, he was living in this house in, in Northern Syria that had been hit by, um, by a bomb. It was, it was, a, it was ISIS uh, that ISIS had, had wrecked their town uh, on a couple different occasions. So their home didn't have a roof and he had three kids or has three kids and his wife and they were living in this house. He showed me pictures of it. It was rubble essentially. And Jesus. He told me a story about how they had to hide in, in a field uh, for five days at one point because um, there were groups of terrorists just going through their town and shooting and terrorizing people. And they had to drink sewage water as they had nothing. They had nothing to drink. They had nothing to eat. So you're telling me these stories. And then I had started already working on the barber's application. And I asked him one day, I said, do you want to go to America? And he said, he said, no, 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 I don't want to go. To, I said, I said, I might be able to do this. Do you want to go to America? And he said, no, 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 no. I said, okay. So I, I laid off it for a while, but then he kept doing work on the house for a couple more weeks. And I kept talking to him. And then we started WhatsApping each other because it's what you do. Everybody WhatsApps over there. So we took mm -hmm. a selfie together and I sent it to him. So now we're chatting when he's not at the house. And then the work's done at the house and he goes back up north and we couldn't go there because it was right on the border, on the Turkish border. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to ask him again. I, I, I really like this dude. Uh, we just had another contractor that was shot. You know, I, I didn't want to see the same happen to him and, and his family. So I called him with my interpreter. And I said, my linguist. And I had her talk to him because my Arabic was like super basic elementary school level. And I told him, I said, I'm, I'm very serious at this point. Like I know that you've told me, no, that you don't want to go to America in the past, but I want you to think of your children. I want you to think of your wife right now. If they know, you know, the regime knows that you work for us. Mm -hmm. You're living in squalor. Let me help you. Let me help your children. That's what I remember telling him. I said, as fathers, this is what we do. We take care of our family. We take care of our children. So think about, I want you to think about that for a minute, how you want, how you want to affect the generations after you. And he started crying. And um, then he said, he'll, he'll go. He said he wanted to go. So I said, all right, let's do this. And I started, and like my typing Arabic was terrible, but <laughs> like WhatsApping with him using like Google Translate. Yeah. And, and I'm going back and forth for weeks. And I started getting all the information, passports. They didn't have passports. Their uh, driver's licenses, um, like military history, family history, all these things and compiling it from the State Department. And so now I have a family of five and then the barber that I'm working to get over. And then finally, the State Department comes back. This is I'm already home at this point now. Right. So I redeployed back in the States. I'm retiring. Oh. And I'm still working on, I'm texting with, with the barber. Like he's asking, you know, what do I do? When, when am I going to find out? Finally, word comes from the state department. And I said, Hey, you've got to get to Iraq. You've got to cross the border. He said, how do I do that? I was like, dude, yeah. that, 
I don't know. So I'm not there. Yeah. So I started calling up contractors and I started calling up dudes I knew were there to talk to the, our local security force, our partner security force. Yeah. And I said, how do I smuggle this dude over, over across the border? <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like one foot out the door from the army and I'm constantly on, and this is like the Afghanistan pullouts happening, you know, operation pineapple express is happening and Argo. And here I am like, I'm like one dude that's been working for a year and a half to get one guy across the border. Um, so it took three attempts to get him to get him over. So I, I tried bribing everybody I could. I tried, mm-hmm. and this is like, I'm talking about like the, our partner force, you know, guys that were contractors, putting them in their trucks as they cross back and forth the border, seeing everything I could yeah. do, gets turned back two times, finally on the third time, makes it over, gets to the consulate, has his interview, and then gets pushed to the States. So meanwhile, now this whole new network opens up in the States where I'm talking to um, like lawyers and sponsors and we were able to get him a house. We got him furniture, we got him a job. And now he's living in Chicago. So I got him settled. And now the next family, now I'm working on them. So then I start connecting those pieces. So I connect the, the, the guy with the family of five that was working on my house and the barber. I said, I need you to talk to each other because I don't speak your language very well. And I don't know shit about right. a smuggler, right? I'm not a smuggler. So I'm like learning as I go. And um, so then so then they get approved. The family of five gets approved. And I'm like, oh shit, okay. Now by now the wife is pregnant. So a lot of responsibility starts coming down on my shoulders. Like, all right, I've got mm-hmm. a pregnant wife. I've got, um, the, you know, my buddy, the contractor now, the, the laborer who's getting threatened, who has to essentially drop off the grid. I gave him $1,000 cash before I left because he, he had to pull back from everywhere. Once people started talking about it, he needed to disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've got his three kids. So I've got all that on, on my mind as, as now I'm trying to coach him through smuggling his, his family across. Takes him a couple of tries as well. They were turned away, beaten. Um, his wife loses the, loses the child uh, during the process. And I'm like sitting at my home in North Carolina, like getting these texts. Like I'm like living these two lives still. I'm like still like even further out the door from the army, you know, managing my family and at the same time, you know, trying to make sure that this other family who I now feel incredibly responsible for can make it safely to Iraq so I can get them to the States. But finally they make it across. Um, and then I get them from the consulate to, uh, to Michigan. And now that family of five is living in Michigan. And currently now what I'm working on doing is getting the wife of the barber uh, smuggled across and then bringing her, bringing her to the States. But she says, I'm, so I'm constantly talking to her, uh, co- talking to, uh, you know, contractors that are connected to the state department. And so that's like sort of my, my personal mission now, but that all stemmed from that deployment in Syria, um, into, you know, sort of a, a side, a side mission, you know, a side, what do you call it? Like a side, uh, venture really of, that, that's given my life a lot of fulfillment and, and purpose. And I, I am prouder of that you know, to, to potentially have changed and affected, you know, generations to come, mm-hmm. like, like an entire mm-hmm. bloodline just by doing some legwork, you know, and, and, and I guess taking on the responsibility of helping these people out. And that's, if I could boil my, my experience in Syria down to anything, nothing else matters but that. Dude, that's such a special thing. And I'm, I'm so glad you were able to do that successfully. And I'm so glad that you are continuing to do that. I know it, it's, uh, it's not an easy process to go through doing that. Um, 
but something, something in you tells you, you have no choice, but you have to do it. You can't, you just can't leave people like that to, to suffer. I, I didn't realize that was uh, going on for you. Um, I'm glad I'm, I'm really glad you were able to, to do that successfully up to this point and continue to do it because our, our good mutual friend, um, Griff put me in the same position this last year. And, um, there is something to be said when you get to affect generations by just helping one family and what that can do. Um, but also I don't know about you, but I don't know. Do you feel a sense of peace from that? Do you feel like it's taken like done a, like a full circle moment? Like for me, it closed a chapter in a good way that I couldn't seem to close. How was that for you? I kind of look at it. I wouldn't say like a, like a penance, like I'm paying my penance as a soldier, but it, it kind of opened up like a new chapter for me. Okay. Like I, I want to help more Yeah. in, in more ways. Uh-huh. You know, I, I, I have this discussion or I've had this discussion for over a decade now, the, the same buddy that I had the, the, that conversation about whether I should join soft. Um, he's now, uh, he's, I think probably a month or two away from taking command in group. Oh, and wow. we always talked about being fulfilled with our service like what at what point do we say we've done the things that we wanted to do and now we can step back because we're you know we got what we needed out of it and we can we can turn the page and i think that helped me turn the page on my or that is helping me turn the page on my career because it's shifting my focus you know shifting my purpose where i can do it in a way where i don't have to deal with a bureaucracy that hates me already you know i had a first sergeant told right. me like once you understand the army the army hates you everything becomes a lot easier and yeah, <laughs> work outside of that, you know, makes makes me feel like I can do it in a way that I can do it my own way. Like nobody, nobody's telling me what to do. Like I can get on WhatsApp and I can talk to the people I'm helping. You know, dude, and- isn't that the coolest thing to be able to just pick up your phone and get on Signal or WhatsApp and just do more and affect more than you could when you're on the ground? It's nuts from your house. Yeah. Like it's weird. Yeah. Just, Oh, I love it. I love it so much. It's I'm my husband hates it. He's like, yeah. you're, you're more in now than you ever were. And I was like, I know. Well, that's I, the wild I, part. I know. I'm so glad that you get this. Oh my God. We're going to talk after yeah. I'm recording about some stuff, but I want to keep going into this. Um, okay. You started American Yogi when? Uh, 2017. So okay. 2017 was North Carolina. What brought the yoga on? What brought that side of you to come out? Because based off of the conversation we've currently had up to this point and the way you look as a human being, it doesn't seem like it would have been. <laughs> it doesn't make sense, right? No, yeah, again, just like the rest of the story. <laughs> yeah. Now that like for me, and I've told people this, I, I had a, a, a professor, a teacher in high school. And I remember him telling me, about all the things he did in his life. He was like a lawyer. He was a doctor. He'd done, he traveled these places and written things. And I was like, man, that dude lived. And I always, I always thought to myself, like, oh, I want to live my life the same way. I want people, when I get down the road, to be like, that dude lived. Like, that dude did it, right? So when I have the urge to do something or try something, I, I just do it. And I usually go way too, way too deep. Um, but <laughs> that's how I find fulfillment. 
So I'd broken my back in, in uh, 2015, in December, 2015, uh, rehabbed up. So what I will say is prior to that, we lost, um, I lost my best buddy. You know, I was with him. I was with him when he died. Um, and then I was also the, the planner and on you know recovery team uh, for two other losses that we had um, for our unit. And this was all during train up. So I was very close to death in some very uncomfortable ways that, that left some pretty strong marks on me that I'm, I'm still working through and still dealing with. Um, but it, it spiraled me into a terrible depression. Um, drinking got terrible again, anxiety and depression, just worse. You know, I hit rock bottom. I was coming home from, you know, I, I was in language training and I'd come home from, from class and I just ball in my kitchen and I didn't know why I just, I would just start crying constantly. Um, there's all this stuff, you know, from Israel in 2006, to like losing buddies to, you know, just, just constant pain throughout my career. When I say I don't want my kids to join, like my, my career, like while I had some beautiful moments, like it was a lot of pain. So I I'd carried all that for years. Um, and then breaking my back was sort of the, um, it was the breaking point for me. You know, I was, I was physically, it's like my body was carrying me through where my mind was shot. At least I had an able body and I could just continue to muscle through. But then when my, you know, I guess it's the universe's way of slowing you down sometimes. Mm -hmm. So it put me on my ass and it forced me to deal with my shit. And when I came back from selection, my body was pretty broken and my mind was pretty broken. And, you know, my wife was pushing me towards trying yoga and, you know, like most, most guys, I resisted it pretty hard at first because, you know, like no, no tough dudes did yoga at the time that I knew about, you know, only women did yoga and you had to wear tights and you had to use crystals and, you know, it was this whole, so I started meditation, right? So I, 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 I found meditation groups and I would talk to buddies that were into Buddhism and I would do, you know, YouTube videos and meditations and whatever I could to get into it. And then I finally tried yoga. And when I tried it, I was like, wow, like there's a presence here. There's a peace here that I never felt. This is, this is pretty incredible. So I went from, you know, practicing one day a week to eventually practicing up to five days a week and really feeling grounded and connected in a way that I never had. So we PC, we moved to uh, North Carolina and I went to a yoga festival uh, for my birthday, like the first year I was down there. And it was amazing. It, it was this beautiful experience of like love and positivity and just beautiful energy. And I'd never experienced anything like that, but it was all women. And there was, you know, a handful, dozen guys there. And there was nothing marketed towards guys, no t-shirts for guys. And I felt really excluded. And that, that was, that was like difficult for me because I felt so connected to the event and so connected to my practice and the spirituality of it. And then to be completely left out of everything else, like the communal aspect to it, um, I felt kind of slighted. And so it was kind of, a, it was kind of twofold. It was, you know, one part of it was that I wanted to create something for myself, you know, to, to, to help myself feel like I had a place there. And then it was, well, it's not just for me, it's for others, it's service, right? So I want to create something for others that might feel excluded and others that haven't found the practice that could really benefit from it. So I approached my brother who he's the brains behind the operation. You know, he does all the business, the, the money side of it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the, the creative side of it. So I approached him and I said, Hey, I have a handful of designs. Let's start a company. 
And he bought into it. So let's do it. So we had five shirts, five t-shirt designs, and they were just men's shirts. And so we're going to sell it. We're going to market it to men. So men can get into yoga, but it didn't take more than a month or so to realize like our biggest supporters were women. So then we started creating, you know, clothes for women as well. And then from being what we thought was going to be a clothing company, just turned into a community. And like that, that's been the most amazing thing about it is, you know, we call it the mindful movement. You know, it's, we feel that this is a movement and we feel like we're riding a wave of, you know, this changing image and I don't want to say stereotype, maybe archetype of what spirituality looks like, you know, what it means to be spiritual, what it means to be vulnerable, what it means to, you know, to be a man or a woman, you know, warrior in this world now. Um, so American Yogi, you know, now really it represents that, that desire for peace without really without boundary, without border, without, you know, judgment or expectation and how that manifests mostly is, is through writing and connection and yoga and, um, community. That's beautiful, man. I love that. I'm glad that you found that. I'm glad that she pushed you in that direction because it is, it is the lighter side of you. It is the side of you that can ground others and give others a tool to help themselves heal on their journey. And I think that's the biggest thing is it's, you're not just like a clothing company, you are a community based, really, that's what you are. It's yeah. you're trying to make others feel a part of something bigger than themselves. And in, in doing that, you found a lot of peace yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's more about, I guess, saving lives than, than anything else, you know, in a, in a strange way. You know, my, my brother was an EMT for years and years and years. Now he's a PA in, in the emergency room. Like, you know, I, I had a life of service as a soldier. You know, this is, this is our way to, to help save others in the ways that we needed to be saved ourselves, you know. And, but it's nice that you're able to see that for what it is instead of push away from it and accept it. I think that's a beautiful thing. But you recently... You and I connected around the time that you, right before, I think, was it before, did we start talking? But yeah, it was right before you went and did Aya with mm -hmm. Heroic Hearts and uh, a mutual friend, Skunk Works. He was like, you need to talk to him. I was like, fun fact, I'm already doing that. <laughs> and uh, he was like, yes. And I was like, yes. And then you were like, but wait, I'm going away somewhere. And I want... I want you to talk to me a little bit about your experience with heroic hearts and, and going to Peru and doing Aya, whatever you're comfortable really yeah. letting out from it, please, if you will. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'll say on the, on the start of it, heroic hearts, it gave me a chance to save my life. It gave me a chance to, to start again, you know, after, after spending so long thinking that, my life was simply going to be a, you know, a series of, of miseries, you know, a series of, of um, painful events and painful reminders till the day I died. Um, you know, I never thought I would kick in you know, my trauma. Um, you know, I, I had what you call, um, what is it? Uh, treatment proof, treatment resistant, treatment resistant depression. Yeah. I had treatment resistant depression. Um, and, uh, I think it was a major depression and generalized, generalized anxiety disorder. You know, I was, uh, I was med boarded out of the army 70% post-traumatic stress was what my, my VA rating turned out to be for as, as long as I'd been going to therapy and counseling and as many drugs as they had tried to put me on, hoping that I'd be healed and nothing worked. They said, okay, you know, here's what you got. So I just assumed that, that I would never get better. Um, I, 
I was contacted by Jesse really just like three, four weeks before the, before the, uh, the, the, um, the trip. And like I had been, I'd been watching heroic hearts for years, you know, following them for a few years, seeing what they were up to, but not really knowing anything about it past, you know, they do psychedelics and, you know, I read that it helps a lot of vets, but, you know, they say like, it calls you when it's time. And it was, it was just my time. And it came in the form of, you know, Jesse Gould, you know, reaching out and saying, do you want to go to Peru? And, you know, I didn't, I, I honestly didn't hesitate. I probably should have hesitated, but I didn't. It just felt like it was the, like, it was just right. Like, okay, like I need this right now. I feel like I'm listening to myself. I probably should have yeah. hesitated, but when they said, <laughs> yeah. I said, yes, yes, yeah. whatever that is. Exactly. Because I was in a place, like I had this day where I didn't want to live anymore. And it was, it wasn't too, too long since that day before he, till he asked me. So I was like, yes, I need it. I'm, you know, like how much lower could I get? You know, right. like this could only help. So why not try? And I had heard that, you know, you can do five years, 10 years, years of therapy in like a single session, a single journey. I was like, well, that's, that's what I need. So I accepted and I said, let's do this, but not really knowing fully what, what I, what ayahuasca was and what I was really getting into. I just knew based on my experiences with psilocybin that it was going to be difficult. Um, I knew that I was going to end up facing um, a lot of, a lot of shit, a lot of you know darkness that I was afraid to face in the past. And that I've only, I'd only barely scratched the surface with, with mushrooms, with psilocybin. So I, I started getting like really scared uh, of that trip. Um, the closer I got to it, you know, that they set you up with an integration coach. So I was talking to my integration coach for a few sessions prior and he, he was amazing. You know, Jared Reinhardt, amazing. Yeah, amazing. I know him. I love Jared. Like that dude is, he's, he's, he's a special person and, you know, he, I'm sure he deals with a lot, but I was riding that roller coaster, right? Like, Oh yeah, I need this. Oh shit. I can't go. I, I can't go right now. Like, you know, he kept pulling me back and, and just keep me in the fight to get there. And I get there and we get into the jungle and it's like, you can feel it. You can feel the Aya calling, you know, you can hear it talking to you when you get there. And I'm just sitting, listening to the, this, like just the cacophony of the jungle, you know, everything like screaming at me and I'm like, Holy shit, this is real. And this is, <laughs> this is probably going to hurt but I'm in it and I might as well embrace it. So when I got there, I just started like trying to arm myself. Right. I start, I was trying to like create all this armor and, and like harden my mind so I could fight. Right. So I could have this, like, I could be on the winning side of this war I was about to have with my psyche. Cause I didn't read anything about Aya before I went, I didn't want to cloud my experience with expectation. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't want to know about, other people's journeys. I didn't want to know about the effects of the medicine. I didn't want to know anything. I just wanted to trust that Jesse had, you know, my, my well-being in mind and that, you know, thousands and thousands of people can't be wrong. Mm -hmm. So I went in, you know, having like meditated all day and journaled all day and I thought I was ready to go and I got in for the first journey and it just put me on my ass. And <laughs> like I remember like the, 
it started and you know i've done psychedelics prior to that so you know there's like that waiting for it to come on and then all of a sudden you're in it sort of session mm-hmm. and it's always really like it doesn't matter how many times you do psychedelics at least for me i feel like it's like when you jump out of a plane like doesn't matter how many times you've done it there's always going to be that moment before you jump yeah. and you're like shit um, <laughs> yeah right so i'm like waiting for it waiting for it and then before i knew it like she had me on the ground like just you know face flat like there was a hand just pushing me down into the earth and kind of pummeling me. And I went through, it was like a, the first journey was like just this 10 round fight. Like it was just constantly just getting hammered um, by different, different pieces of my soul that were hurting. Mm-hmm. Um, they came up to, to the forefront, like they were all waiting in line, like a whole, like one of them was holding a bat one of them was holding a clothes hanger and maybe another one was holding a belt and a wrench and they're just like waiting in line like for their chance to to come at me and like I just remember like not being able to get to my knees not being able to stand up at all um, and just being pushed to the ground and I just I remember reminding myself over and over like this is why you're here you know what's important is that you're here you're here and then I heard this voice say because they're not and I lost it, dude, like lost it. Um, I realized that I had a lot of survivor's guilt that I'd been holding on to for years that I'd never, I'd never like worked through. You know, I remember when I was getting out of the army, I thought about, I'd have these panic attacks and I realized that there was a dude that was, that was sliced in half by a vehicle, um, and another guy was paralyzed in that same truck and he was two weeks away from getting out and I carried that with me for a long time and um I never really dealt with it but on that mat you know when I was in the Maloka going through it I was like shit like I can I can feel it like I can I can feel that where that guilt has been sitting and I can actually I can I can feel it also leave me. I can feel it being pulled out at the same time. And I could see my, my best friend was there and he's watching me and mother Aya is personified and I can see her too. And they're both watching me silently struggle. And I'm just like wrestling with myself, like begging for them to talk to me and begging for them to, to be there for me. And no one is saying a word. And I'm just in this fight. And I realized then that this was me needing to go through things on my own, needing me to process it on my own. And the gift that she was giving me was the gift of discomfort, you know, where the gift of, of being able to work through my discomfort, not to drink it away, to take something, to numb it away, to find a distraction, to, to make it go away that she was making me face it uh, head on. And it was just round after round after round of just working through different parts of my body and different things I was carrying in different places. And it was a fight. It was just this, this, this stand up knockdown fight. You know, I eventually made it to my knees and then from my knees, I made it up, you know, to, to sitting upright and I remember, you know, I was having this discussion with Mother Aya, like she wanted me to breathe and I couldn't breathe. And I was trying to force these like 
um, hyperventilation style breaths to like show her that I could breathe, like show myself that I could like, is this what you want sort of thing? Yeah. Like I could beat it, right? Like I could just like, you know, will yeah. it away with brute force. And what I realized that journey is I was afraid of looking at my, my darkness and I was afraid of, of letting go and, and really surrendering. Cause I didn't want to lay on my back and look into the darkness of the Maloka at the time. Like there was this, you know, this uh, open air room and the, the ceiling was just pitch black. I didn't want to lay back and have to face it. I wanted to, I wanted to keep my eyes closed. I wanted to sit upright like I was in control. But eventually I got up and went to the bathroom and I'm sitting in, in the bathroom and I, I look over and I see this candle burning. And I thought to myself, man, that's beautiful. And then I heard a voice say, they're all beautiful. All your thoughts, you know, all your, all your darkness, you know, everything that, that you carry, it's all, you know, it's all you and it's all beautiful. So I got up and I went back to my, to my uh, mat and I laid there and I, I, I stared in the darkness and I realized that darkness was me. And I could finally start looking at it. And then all of a sudden I felt this like wave of peace wash over me. And then I kind of drifted off into, into awakening, I guess would be the only way to describe it. And it was very short. And that was it. And then, then sort of like I opened my eyes and went outside and I looked up at the stars and I could see every constellation. Like I could see them. I, and I always told people like, I'd never see constellations. You know, I could never figure out like what's what. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden I looked at the sky and I could see all the pictures of all the different shapes in the sky. And it was, it was unbelievable. And that was like my intro to it. And after that, I was like, oh, I got this, right? Like I understand ayahuasca, like, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, I won that round. I won all those 10 rounds. Like I fought, but I won. I could do this. Like I, I'm in control. That's cute. And uh, the next day, yeah, right. And then the next day, like I talked to the shaman and he's like, Phil, you had a hell of a journey last night. Let's go easy tonight. Like you can't get greedy with the medicine. Like we're going to give you a very light dose. And right. So the next night, you know, like it was a somber one. You know, I was, I was fully, you know, cognizant. Like it was a very, it was a very light dose of ayahuasca. So I'm just sitting there and everybody's like, it was one of those quiet nights. Like nobody was really making noise. It was just heavy, heavy in the room. But I'm sitting there just getting frustrated. I'm getting angry. And I'm, Cause I'm like, you know, what am I doing here? I'm not, I'm not at peace. You know, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm, you know, getting what I should. I should have, I should have taken a dose. I should have, you know, why can't I settle? I was frustrated. I was feeling disconnected from everyone around me. I was like, they're all going through these really powerful experiences. And I'm sitting here just bored. And I was really angry. And then the next night, and the, the medicine's still going through you, right? Like you think like the medicine's not there because you're not in that deep, crazy mm-hmm. psychedelic experience, but it's it's in you. But I was, but in my head, I'm like, no, I'm not getting it, I'm not feeling it. The next morning we're sitting around in our in our, you know, and I'm obviously condensing a lot of this, but you know, we're sitting yeah, in no, our integration sure. session. And Jesse reads this poem that he wrote. He was next to me in the Maloka every night. So he was he was always next to me. And he knew I was struggling. Like we talked a bit and I, I was very open. I shared absolutely everything I was going through with everyone around me. I wanted, I needed that. 
Um, so he wrote this poem about being a warrior and what it means to be a warrior. And, you know, the, well, the facilitator, Maddie, was like my guardian angel there. And, you know, he was talking to me constantly about laying down my sword. And Jesse read this poem and I was like, holy shit, this is me. You know, it's I'm, I'm trying to figure out what it means to be a warrior. I'm trying to figure out what it means to be tough, to be a man. And trying to align that with who I am now, you know, as a veteran, having had these experiences and I lost it and I just started, I just started bawling. And I was like, shit, this is my purge. Like, man, I'm, this is like, I, I thought it was only in the ceremonies that, that I was going to have these, these incredible experiences, but like, I started releasing and shedding and like feeling like this lightness, like, no, I can I can be a warrior and not be hard and everything be a fight. And so I started, I started to kind of like come to terms with that boredom, with that frustration that I had the night before, that realizing that that really was part of the journey and coming to terms with what I was dealing with, understanding what I was dealing with. And that my theme, you know, became softness, you know, lightness was that I'd been carrying so much for so long that it was time to let go. So having spent two days, like just straight trying to prepare myself for these journeys, just meditating for hours a day and writing and reading for, and being so serious. Before my last journey, I was like, I'm, I'm letting go. I'm, I'm, it's going to be what it's going to be. I, I've already shown myself that no matter how much I try to prepare for the, for the journey, like there's nothing I can do. It's going to be what it's going to be. So that day I took it easier. I just, I hung out. We talked about food and what we were going to eat. We got back because we were like hardly eating. I wasn't really hungry. So before my last journey, I didn't eat anything really that, that day. So my stomach's empty. I wasn't sleeping all week. Um, I slept maybe an hour a night. So I was pretty sleep deprived. I was pretty, my stomach was empty, but I was light. You know, I went in there, I was leading yoga every night before the, before the ceremonies. So I went in, led like this really peaceful, beautiful practice. You could feel lots of love, you know, in the room around the, you know, nine people we had. I, I, I feel good, right. Going to the ceremony. I feel super light. I'm like, I'm going to feel so much love tonight. This is going to be such a beautiful journey. I can't wait. I'm going to see God tonight. Mm -hmm. I'm going to love it. It's going to be amazing. So we get into the Maloka. The you know shaman comes in and he starts pouring, you know, chanting and pouring the eye for everyone. And I was the last person. So it's like everybody goes around. I'm mm -hmm. the very last person, which is kind of like nerve wracking, right? Because you're, because by the time it got to me, it was like an hour in and people were already going through the, going through the paces. And it was me, then Jesse. And so it gets to me finally. And, you know, if, if, if you haven't been to Peru, there's, a, there's these screech owls that sound like fire alarms. They're just so <laughs> loud. And it's like, I thought it was mechanical, but it was these owls. And then there's all of a sudden this animal that's making these like guttural yells, like, like a moaning, like, like someone's in, in pain, like a man yelling in pain. And this is right about the time where he starts pouring my, my medicine. So Chris, the shaman, he stops when he starts hearing it. He stops pouring. And I see him wait and hesitate. And he hears it again. And then, he, and then he continues to pour. 
the next day he told me he thought the animal, he had heard the animal saying more, more. So he kept pouring more for me because he thought that's what I needed. Hmm. So I took my medicine and I'm sitting there and I'm like, man, I'm, I'm like calm. I'm meditating. I feel so much love and, and peace. And then I'm gone. Um, you know, I, I'm going to preface this because last time I told the story, it was, uh, I was up in New York with, with Jesse or, or no, 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 I was on a podcast with Jesse and I, I'd said this and Jesse clarified, I didn't actually die, but this is how I felt. Um, I experienced myself dying. Um, so I experienced my death and before I knew it, I was, I was in hell. And it was just this timeless, um, infinite space of terror. And more of it, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, if you've been through a psychedelic experience like that, there, there's not things you can describe. Um, mm -hmm. But it was a feeling of, of just, there's, there's no words for, for the, the brutality of it and the terror and the fear and the um, it, it was just so unbelievably painful. Um, it was the most painful, scary thing I'd ever experienced. And I was lost in it and thought I was forever trapped there. Um, you know, I realized later that it was the, the hell that I created for myself inside for so many years. But the first thing I remember then of actually being back in my body, because I was so far gone, I was thrashing on the ground violently. And the facilitator was this amazing, amazing soul. And he was wrapped around me, like figure four, figure four in my body, holding me as tight as possible. Thankfully, he was an old boxer and an MMA coach. Oh, strong. It was like, it, yeah, strong, like meant to be. Like he was meant to be there. Mm -hmm. and that's what he told me afterwards. He knew there was a reason and that was it, is to be there while I was going through what I was going through. And I'm like stomping my feet violently on the wooden floor and thrashing and begging him not to let me go back down the hill and begging him not to leave. I remember scratching his back and crawling up his arm and alternately like bawling and crying and I couldn't breathe and I was like suffocating and I was burning up like I was on fire. And it was this terrible, terrible experience that's, you know, at one point it got so bad, they tried to cut it with, you know, cold water and that didn't work. And then they tried to cut it with, uh, with lemons and that, or limes, cold limes, mm -hmm. and that didn't work. And then the shaman had to come over and perform um, a ritual on me to suck the demons out, to suck that darkness out. And then he, as he was doing it, it, took two people to hold me down. Like he had to put all of his body, both of them had to put all their body weight on me just to keep me from thrashing. And he performs this ritual and I just shoot up. And I hear him say, everybody give Phil a round of applause. Everybody clap for Phil. Phil, you, you survived, you made it. And I was like, holy shit, that was bad. Holy shit, that was terrible. But you know, I survived. And I was like, Jesse, thank you. Thank you for being here with me. You know, the other dude with me, Steve. I was like, Steve, thanks for being here, man. Oh, thank you so much. Like, oh my God, that was so 
And then I stopped. I was like, oh my God, I'm still in it. And then I started getting pulled back down. And man, it was hard. And at that point, it got so bad. Like I was begging, I was begging Maddie not to leave my side. I was terrified. Eventually they had to take me out of the room um, and put me in, put me in the bathroom. I was, I was just, I was, a, I was disturbance to everybody else. Like I was just banging on the floor and thrashing and I didn't scream surprisingly. Like the, the shaman told me is like, you know, most people probably would have had a, you know, a split at that point and been screaming. And he's like, he's, you know, he told me the stuff he saw, he pulled out of me. It was pretty gnarly. Wouldn't tell me what it was, but he, so I go to the bathroom and then it's, it's really just kept coming in waves. And it was this fight for, to keep my eyes open. Cause every time my eyes closed, I was, I was getting, I was getting, I could feel my body being dragged back down. And I hadn't slept for days at this point, like days I hadn't slept, maybe an hour a night for, you know, five, six days. And my body had been fighting for so long. I started going numb. So my first, my legs went numb and then my, like my, kind of my torso went numb and then all of a sudden my hands started going numb and I'm convulsing in these weird ways and my legs are convulsing my arms are convulsing and I know like my whole body is like doing these weird like I can see myself and I couldn't believe it was it was me that was doing these things and I'm just fighting this to stay awake they had to keep snapping and yelling my name they put me in a cold shower stripped me down naked to try to get me to to wake up and it didn't work mm -hmm. i was so deep into it that like nothing was going to pull me out how long has this lasted at this point when they started putting you in the shower i think i was probably four or five hours in at that point oh shit so they really yeah. hit you hard with a big dose the 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 uh it lasted about seven hours oh um, my goodness it was seven hours of fighting just and i remember at one point it made me cry. I, I looked to Jesse and I was like, dude, how long have I been fighting? And he says, too long, man. And I just lost it. Yeah, it was, uh, I just, I did, didn't stop. It was just, it just kept going and going. And I was begging him. I was begging him. Like, when is this going to be over? I just want it to end. I just want this all to end. Jesse's like, it'll end when it's going to end. They wouldn't, you know, like it's, you just have to, you have to go through it, man. He was like, you know, what are your, he's like, who do you like? You know, what kind of stuff do you like? I was like, I love, you know, I love poetry. I love, he's like, who's your, one of your favorite, like, you know, like philosophy and Buddhism. He's like, I said, I love Ram Dass. And he's like, what are your favorite Ram Dass quotes? I'm like, I was just telling him Ram Dass quotes. And he's like, like one of them was, you know, I said, you don't, you don't worship the gate, you enter the inner temple. And Jesse's like, well, dude, you're in the inner temple now. And one of the other guys I was with, he came in and he put his hand on my heart. You know, he told me like, Phil, you're beautiful, man. Like, you're, you're love. I just lost it. And I told him I just was, I told him I was so alone. I was tired of feeling alone. Tired of fighting. And Jesse realized like, so the whole time I'm just like, my feet are just banging on the ground. I'm just like, like Jesse's like, you're marching, man. Like you're just marching all night. Yeah. And so I realized that's like my final march, right? Like that's getting the soldier out of me. Like that was my last march. 
and I had this team and like, I thought I wanted to see love, right? Like I thought that all I wanted to do was feel love. And I thought it was going to come from inside. Like it was going to be this, like, I'm going to see rainbows and angels and God. And turned out that like the love that I needed to feel was everyone around me. You know, like there's this team of guys that like being in an ER, like, you know, if you're reborn, you know, you have a doctor, you have nurses, you have, you know, they, they deliver you. And I was delivered by those guys in that room who were holding me, like literally holding my hands and holding my feet, keeping me conscious. And I just felt such gratitude for those souls. I kept thanking him and apologizing. I'm like, don't apologize, man. And the shaman kept coming in from the ceremony because they had to rotate through because my energy was so dark and heavy and, and painful that they could only take on as much as they could. And they had to leave to cleanse themselves and then like come back in, mm-hmm. you know, Maddie, my facilitator was telling me he, he could feel the flames, you know, he could, he could feel all the, 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 the weight and the darkness. And, you know, I remember him telling Jesse, like, you have to watch out because he'll cling to you. And I felt, I was like, I was like, apologize. I'm like, don't apologize. And then as the night went on, like I started, you know, feeling better and better in stretches. Like I'd be, Mm -hmm. I'd be clear for a couple minutes at a time. And then I'd have these really powerful conversations. Then I'd go back to fighting. And it didn't matter how much I wanted to surrender and let go and connect to my heart and feel beauty. Like this is what I needed. You know, I needed, Mm -hmm. I needed that fight because that was, that was how my brain listens in my heart. Mm -hmm. So I had to go through the fight. And one of the things we realized, you know, towards the end was that I'd been keeping so much in for so long. Um, and what I created was a hell inside myself. It was all this darkness and pain inside myself. And I was masking it and bathing in it and not actually addressing it. And Jesse, actually, he wanted me to just start telling him. I was like, just keep, just keep talking. I was like, can you guys, because at some point it started getting silent. And I was like, just, you got to talk. I got to know that you're here. And then he asked me to start telling stories. I started telling them these stories and I was telling them like, I don't like talking about myself. I didn't like talking about myself in the past because I felt like it was bragging. Mm. I didn't want people to judge me for being overconfident. So I just didn't tell my stories. And they told me, you know, you have a beautiful story to tell the things you've done, the things that you've, that you've experienced and done for others. Like there's a way to do it without, without bragging there's a way to do it just just do it as you you have a story and you need to get it out you need to tell it and that's when I started telling them the story you know I told them they were asking about my service and being you know being a leader in the army and things I've done that I'm proud of and that's when I told the story about the the Kurds that that I helped bring over and you know by the end of the story my journey was has kind of come to a close it was very it was very appropriate and at the end of the, the journey there, um, took two of them to walk me up, back up all these stairs to get to the house. I was, uh, I couldn't really walk at that point because I was my just, I was taxed. My muscles were just totally maxed out. And I got to the room and I was afraid of the dark when I got there. So I had to sleep with uh, two headlamps on next to my bed. But I just, I didn't want to go back to darkness at all. Yeah. And I couldn't be alone. So I needed my roommates to just keep talking to me. Um, I slept maybe a half hour that night. I got up 
And after so long of just being just terrified in, in that experience, I came out and all of a sudden I started feeling a lot of respect for it. I felt a lot of reverence for it. And I felt like light. I felt like peace in a way that I've never in my life felt. I looked over at my, I was meditating and I was sitting in front of a window and I looked over and I saw my reflection in the window and I saw my eyes and I just started bawling because I didn't recognize the face. I didn't recognize my eyes because there was like a heaviness that was just gone. I was just completely gone. And I just, I was changed. Um, you know, I've been integrating now for a couple months and, you know, there's days when life is, life is tough. You know, there's days when, you know, I still feel that, you know, that, that depression is still in there. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's a process, you know, but it doesn't overtake me like it used to. I don't walk around with, with a heavy gut like I used to for decades almost. Um, I can connect with others around me in ways I couldn't before. I'm hopeful. You know, I have, I feel love in ways I've never felt love and connection. You know, I was up, I was invited to go talk to CNN uh, last month or so about or two months ago about my experience and I remember I was up in the green room about to go on and I was like man I could use a drink right now like I'm, I'm like nervous and I'm and I stopped myself I was like dude you don't need to drink you need to feel this mm -hmm. you, need to, you need to let yourself experience this and when I did that I'm looking out onto the city and all of a sudden I started feeling joy and excitement in a way I never felt before and then turn into elation. And I was like, man, I never let myself feel this way. Like mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it opened up a, a whole, a whole new side of myself. And, you know, truly, you know, that it's not like I had an ego death, right? Like I did, it wasn't like my ego didn't die. My ego was damaged for a little bit, you know, and that's, I live with it now. It's my partner now, you know, my ego mm -hmm. is, is an equal partner in this journey, but my old identity died for sure. You know, who, who I was, who I identified as, my values, how I coped with life and understood life and my emotions, all changed. You know, I'm, now I'm like a pubescent child, you know, trying to re-understand my emotions and how I interact with the world around me um, in just the most amazing ways. My friend. <laughs> Welcome to the other side. Yeah, thank you. Nice to have you here. Yeah, sorry, that was a long one. That's the first time I, you know, told told my my story in full. No, don't ever apologize. There is no time that is too long or too short. It is the journey, and what it is is what it is. And I wanted to hear every part of it, and I'm honored that you felt comfortable enough to share that with me. There's a lot in there. That is heavy and heartbreaking and horrific and no two journeys are the same but a lot of what you said resonated with me and in, in 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 being in that i'm sorry it was so hard but she will never give you more than you can handle yeah and you know there's a reason she shit kicked you a little bit yeah that's what i needed it's 
listen, sometimes people just need to be handled differently. We all respond differently to different things, right? That's why some people run into fire and run, some people run away, right? It's no different yeah. than you at the beginning of your journey. Um, it's just wild listening to you speak about it in the way that you did. I can, I can, um, completely agree when I, when you say that Jesse is, is someone special that he means it in the most heartfelt ways when he says, don't apologize. He's yeah. been there. He's been there. He, he gets it when you're able to see yourself in someone else and watch them go through an experience like that. You have nothing but empathy and support for them and want them to feel nothing but, but love. And unfortunately it, it seems like you went on quite a journey there, especially on your last night. Um, and I know integration into reintegrating into life is a big part of that. So how are you doing with that reintegration process? Yeah. Reintegration has been, it's been really hard. Uh, it's been really hard because, you know, people that go home to either if they're single or if they don't have kids, you know, it's one thing I'm not saying it's easier or harder, you know, but, Going home to, you know, three little, very highly emotional um, mm -hmm. little girls was really hard. You know, like our living situation is a little tenuous right now, which, which makes it difficult as well. Mm -hmm. So I've had a lot. It's not like I could walk into, you know, peace. I could walk into, you know, a very calm environment and like slowly reintegrate. Like I was in it um, when I came home and I'm still reintegrating um it's been hard but it's also made me a better father it's made me a better husband you know i connect with my i connect with my wife in ways that i was never able to because i shielded a lot of that from her for you know because i i wasn't ready to share some of those things inside of myself and i wanted to also protect her which i which i shouldn't have done she doesn't need protection from my feelings you know but mm -hmm. that's that's how i treated my relationship um, i'm a lot more patient with my children and I understand them in ways that I didn't before, you know, and they'd be freaking out having a brutal temper, temper tantrum. I used to get angry and I'd raise my voice and I'd try to discipline them. And that was just the wrong way to go about it. You know, now when I see them flail and yell and scream, they're just going through their little journeys too. You know, they're going through their little, their little psychedelic experiences, you know? Yeah. So instead of trying to raise my voice and assert over them, I'm with them. You know, I stay calm and peaceful and I hug them if they want. And I don't, if they don't want to be hugged, you know, I give them their space and I, I try to hold space for my children in the way that my facilitator and Jesse, my people around me held space for me when I was going through it. So that's been really amazing. Um, you know, my approach to people around me, you know, Jared, you know, my, my facilitation, um, my integration coach talks a lot about, you know, everyone around you being the guru. You know, everyone around you is, is there to teach you something about yourself. Um, so that's a different way I'm approaching the world now. But I can tell that I'm still raw. I'm still very sensitive um, emotionally and energetically to the things and the people around me. You know, I'll mm -hmm. cry if I'll, I've only watched like a couple of movies since I've been back. I, I just started listening to the, to the news again after a couple of months of not being able to. Don't. It's, it's, it's hard, right? Stop it. Don't. What are you trying yeah. to do? Are you trying to hurt yourself? Don't do it. I know, right? I've always been interested in it. I'm trying to approach it mindfully, though. Like, I can't watch or see pictures. Like, when I, I have, I've literally like covered the screen if I've seen things that are 
that are really personal to me, but somebody else's experience, like what, like the, like the kind of atrocities or horrors of war when I see like mm-hmm. Ukraine, like I, I can't really, I can't hear anything about it. You know, like the shooting that just happened. I can't read yeah. anything about it. I can't think about it. It's still, I'm still too, I don't know, but maybe I wouldn't say too open because I, I want to be, I want my heart to be open all the time, but I'm still very sensitive. Yeah. You, you know, so, so I'm very yeah, you, you take it on. You you you're you're an empath, and you just yeah. other other people's suffering becomes your suffering, even though you're not experiencing it at the time. That's a a downfall of mine. That's something yeah, that I no, haven't this, been able to kind of get my hands on ever since starting doing psychedelics. Do you, do you feel like so? For me, one of the one of the big things has been protecting my energy afterwards because I was giving away too much without protecting my own. Do you feel like yep. that's something that you, you dealt with on your either integration or prior? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think before I was, I was, I was always empathetic to others, but there was a, always a nice wall there that kind of stopped it from punching through. But now after, after doing sitting with Aya and psilocybin, and I've always used cannabis for since for a while now, for at least six, seven years. Um, Cannabis is is used with a different intent now. And so I find anytime I get overwhelmed, it's the thing that kind of brings me back to my body and calms me down because I, I not only give all of my energy away, I leave the door open for it to come in and whatever that is comes in. So it's not always pure or of good or intention or of, of love. It can be whatever is attached to that. And I really notice it when I travel and if I'm on a plane and I'm sitting beside someone, I've yeah. had times where after the last Aya ceremony, I was on my way down from, from wherever I was to Texas. And I went and spent the week with black rifle and Griff and everyone were like, dude, like that, don't go to the range. Like, don't do any of that stuff right after me and the energy. And I was like, I yeah. called him from the airport and I said, Hey, so People are walking by me and I am overwhelmed with, I can feel it coming off of them. And I just remember him being like, I want you to take a deep breath. I want you to envision this huge bubble of light around you and fucking like everything that's coming at you. I want you energetically to just kind of rear up and be like, fuck all the way off. And then really look at it from a protection standpoint and stop allowing yourself to absorb because like, like so many with the world being the way it is, if you, if you want to hurt, you can find hurt within two clicks and I I absorb it in a way that it affects me. And then it affects my day. And then it affects the way my mood is. And I can't, I'll just start crying and I'll be like, why am I crying? Nothing is wrong. And then they'll be like, well, you just paid attention to X, Y, and Z. And now you're taking on their hurt that you don't need to absorb. Yeah. Yeah. Your body, your body is like speaking to you now, right? Like, oh yeah, I I could, I could just push stuff to the side before, right? So like Memorial Day just came around, right? And I woke up and I'm like, I'm not going to do anything Memorial Day today. I'm just going to have a good day with my family. You know, I'm just going to go to the beach and chill. Sat down to meditate, and I started to feel like this tickle in my soul, right? Like something was starting to scratch at me. It's like you know, Mm -hmm. it's Memorial Day. You know, you know, you should take time. You know, you should think about your dudes. Mm-hmm. so after i meditated i was like all right i'll just write a little bit and then as i started writing i just started bawling you know started crying like out of nowhere just like shaking and crying and it's like before aya i don't think i could have accessed that i don't i think my body would i just would have shoved it down and that would have been it 
But mm-hmm. I has allowed like the spigot to open up, right? Where when you need to cry, you cry. When you need to feel, you feel, you know? But it's wild because it, the, so last year I started, was it last year I started doing I or the year before? I think it was last year. And I'd sat in a few ceremonies now, but this year when, when Memorial Day rolled around, I said to my husband, I got to go for a run. And he's like, okay. So I go for a run. I finished the run and there was like a last kilometer. So like what, three quarters of a mile for you. I started sprinting, like just not by choice, just out of control and sprinting as fast and as hard as I could. And then I just couldn't breathe. And I just started screaming when I was running. And then I just started wailing. And I remember running through the cul-de-sac and my neighbors were like, thought I was like having like a problem, like a cardiac. Cause I was like, <gasps> and I was just, and I, I fell to the ground and I lied behind my car and my legs gave out and I just wailed. I just, and my husband comes and goes, why is wrong? And I, I just couldn't articulate it that I was just missing my friends. Yeah. That's beautiful though. It is, but I hadn't yeah. had that heaviness in a minute and, and going through that in June 11th is, is my shit day. So that's yeah. it, always the time of year. So I, I now notice my body shifting though, around the, the weeks leading up and the weeks leading after yeah. to the traumatic events in mm. a different way. I feel things differently and I'm way more hypersensitive than ever yeah that's okay though exactly as long as you learn how to handle it it's when people don't reintegrate properly that it can break them read and, that, and that's what i've been telling people too it's like you know, there's, there's kind of two sides to that right if you're struggling and you know like i was and then still do some days you know struggle i've changed my the, the framing in my head of it right it's not it's not just a hard day it's i forget who told me this but they they use the term sacred suffering. And I mm. think that's beautiful, right? It's like, I try to look at my suffering as sacred suffering. Like this is something, I think it was Jared actually. You know, it's something that you have to experience. If you don't experience it, you're not being true to your soul. So I allow myself to feel that. And like, for, my, for example, my wife, you know, just went on her first, uh, she went to her first ceremony uh, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, really? Went to with with uh, the Mission Within, the Hope Project. Yeah. And did... Um, uh, psilocybin and five meo and you know she was struggling before she went down she lost her father when she was young like we you know, we've had she's carried all my trauma for you know for almost 20 mm-hmm. years she was hurting before she went down and i had to reframe how i saw her pain right so i saw i started to look yeah. at her pain as her sacred suffering right like her journey that she had to go through to get it to get to where she wanted to be or needs to be and so the other side of that is the, is the integration piece, like addressing exactly what you're talking about. Like, you know, people say, oh, should I go do this? Or where should I get mushrooms so I can try? I was like, dude, I would not recommend anyone to, to have these kind of experiences without a solid support system in place to carry mm-hmm. them before, through, and after. That's, to me, that's been everything. But I'm glad you address it that way because so many people, it's the, it seems like, oh, that's the cool thing to go and do. But there is so much responsibility that needs to be placed on these people who facilitate, who offer and who bring people in to experience it. And I had such a positive personal experience with heroic hearts and how it was handled that it makes my heart happy to hear that you also had such a 
even though it was a very taxing and almost traumatic, if you will, you know, ceremony, you were able to have the tools and the people around you to help make sure that you integrated into life again in the way that you should. Yeah, I, th- I think that's something that I talked about. You know, we had like our little, uh, we had the ceremony on the last day, not the psychedelic ceremony. It was like, a, I think it was a fire ceremony. And something I talked about then was, so I've always hated to be treated like a soldier, be treated like a veteran. Like I don't, I don't mm. like being treated differently. I want people to treat me like, even like the way I teach yoga and the way I, the instructors I go to for yoga, I like to go to instructors that don't, you know, make any sort of, um, you know, like the trauma sensitive trauma informed. I like to go, just let me be a regular student. I don't want to feel like I'm different, mm-hmm. but what's incredible about, about what heroic hearts has put together is that I needed to be treated like a soldier. I needed them to have the support system in place to deal with someone like myself with a shit ton of trauma who is potentially his body's going to get pretty violent and have a pretty mm-hmm. potentially brutal experience. So if I didn't have a support system like Heroic Hearts I put in place, I don't think I would have had nearly as incredibly groundbreaking or incredibly you know powerful experience as I did. That'll change my life. So it's it really like there, are, there are times when you need that. You need that special treatment. You know, you need to be treated in that way. So mm-hmm. without that support system, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend it even. You know. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I I think that's it's. I did an episode yesterday on a, a show called Rebuilding the Beast with Fezzi. He's an NBA a champ. I'm learning yeah. all about basketball through this guy. And he's he's yeah. super chill. And he told me about an experience and it's his story to tell, but he told me about an experience and we had a conversation about it. And he goes, I don't think I, I don't think I had that experience properly. And I said, walk me through it. That's cool. And, yeah. and then he explained it to me. And I was like, oh. Oh no, 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 yeah. no. And he was like, Oh, do you think we could talk about this? And I was like, yeah. And then we went through it and he was like, okay, well, let's have a different conversation and see how we can do things differently. And I remember saying just like, what, what a beautiful thing it is when people are willing to say, Hey, I went through this. I don't know if I did it right, but I want to get work on this. I want to get better. I want to heal in a different way. Do you know anybody that can help me with that? That's a fucking special thing, man. Humility. That's like that. That is a special type of humility. It, it, it really is. And, and I see that humility in you and I see intent and love and I see nothing but beautiful light. When you were speaking talking about moving your family, the glow that came off of you is hard to articulate. It's a, it, it, everything shifted. Yeah. No, I mean, I I think, I think one of the, you know, one of the, the beautiful things about this conversation is like it, it couldn't have happened without that, that really soft, you know, energetic connection. You know, it's a two-way street, right? Like there's a reason that I haven't told that story. Yeah. You know, before you know, there's, there's something, there's a space that you hold, you know, and it's a space that I never would have felt prior to, you know, meeting mother Aya, you know, that, that we, we live, we live on this plane sort of in a way, you know, and we're, that's where, you know, energy can connect not to sound too woo woo, but that's how it feels. Listen, 
I don't know that anything you can say to somebody with palm tattoos is too woo-woo at this point. <laughs> That's something yeah. somebody said to me once. And I was like, oh, are you trying to say homie? Are you trying to throw shade? I feel your shade. But it's true. It. You can be as woo-woo as you want. You go fucking right for it because you've you've earned the right to go as far into that realm as you want because you've walked as far into the dark as possible only to come yes. out into this beautiful soul now not that you weren't before i didn't know the man before but i'm sure yeah. glad i've got to meet the man now <laughs> i appreciate it yeah it's, you know jesse said it after that ceremony it's like dude what could be harder than that like you died in your mind like you died and yeah. you went to hell like what yeah. what will ever be that hard again mm -hmm. nothing nothing you walked it you've done it yeah and the, the, the crazy part is too, it's, you know, people ask me like, will you do it again? I don't hesitate. Like, like am, am I terrified of it again? Like, hell yeah. I'm terrified to dive back in, but will mm -hmm. I do it again? Yeah, I will. Because that's what it, we need for our soul. And you found that. And that's the thing too. I just, I discussed with my husband. Cause he said, I said to him, like, I'm at the, I'm sitting at a point right now in my journey where I know I need, I like, I know I need to go sit in ceremony. It hasn't, worked out in the location that I normally went and yeah. out of the, out of the blue, Jesse texts me and was like, Hey, do you want to go to Peru? And I was just like, shit, God, <laughs> she knows. And she tells, she, she talks, <laughs> she knows, she listens she and knows. Yeah. she knows. And for as horrific as my last experience was, it is something I will hold deeply and know that I need to revisit and sit with at least yeah. twice a year. I know it is a part of me now and I know it's something I must honor and stop pushing away. And that's okay. It isn't, isn't that unbelievable? You know, you can't, it's hard to describe that to someone, right? Yeah. You know, I, I'm talking to my buddy who's, he's doing a paper, he's an ILE, right? So in, in the majors course, and he's doing a paper on psychedelics and soft and how you'd integrate that into, into army um, mental health. Uh, mental health and he's like he's like you know the, the cool thing about it is it, it's not addictive and i said hell dude of course it is it's like the last thing you want to do right yeah <laughs> but we keep going back right it's like it's it's not that you're addicted to the to the medicine you're addicted to no. the to the healing you know you're addicted yeah. to the to the growth to like the, the growth yeah but like the, the experience itself can be so, you know, there's other people and, you know, Jesse prefaced this on our last podcast as well, is that there's people that have beautiful experiences mm -hmm. where it's all love and light and clouds and heaven and God and happiness. And so there's both sides of the coin, but like, personally, I might experience a lot of pain for a long time in ceremony until, or I can go in next time and maybe it's a beautiful experience. Maybe it's all love and light, right? But either way, like, I know that it is important enough to dive back into and take the chance, you know? But you're willing to see that for what it is instead of putting this, uh, this terrifying darkness around it when, cause that's never what it is. And it's always nothing but light. It's always nothing but love. And it's always going to be what you can handle and nothing more and what you need to see and not what you want to see. Right. Yeah. She's not a, She's not a giver of gifts. She's a giver of, of, of light and healing. So sometimes you got to go through it to find the light. And in darkness, there's always light, yeah. right? You can't have darkness without it, light. It's just not possible. No. And like, I think that's, that's one of the things that we're forced to see as well during those journeys. 
It, mm-hmm. Something I thought about it a lot is that, you know, people that go back multiple times, like it's, it's brave. Like when you say I have to go a couple of times a year, as horrific as my last experience was, I'm going to go back like that. That's bravery, right? Like to, to know what you're getting into and how painful it could truly be. And then still walking through the door. That's brutally hard. Yeah. Like the, I think, I, I think not, I don't think there's a lot of, you know, um, attention paid to that like the people that that choose to do this for themselves like are are so incredibly brave because it's truly the it can be the hardest thing because it's just you and your mind like that's that you're putting yourself through you're diving in in a way that can be terrifying but you're doing it for good and yourself and those around you and even still even knowing all the good that it can do for those around you it's still really hard and you still have to go through it and that's still scary as hell yeah. And if I'm honest with you, it's not, it's not even for me. It's so that I can be good for others because exactly. others around me count on me to be functional and a parent and a wife. And there's, but there is that inner struggle of every time I've gone, it's like, I am ready to move into the Amazon and never, ever come out. Like I, yeah feel a connection in a way that I haven't to anything. And that's, that's a hard thing to come home to though, and try to yeah. find balance with. And, yeah. and not only to, to leave the Amazon, but to come home to like polar opposite, you know, yeah. people that are being inconsiderate and, mm-hmm. you know, consumerism and commercialism and all those things. Like that's really hard for me. That's why I moved to the beach because I, I hardly ever leave the beach because I, I just want to be near you know, purity water, you know, mm-hmm. like it, that to me was the hardest thing, you know, it was, was leaving that, that beautiful, sacred, you know, space and nature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We underestimate how much we need that as human beings to be yeah. successful in survival. Um, but geez, man. Wow. Ooh. I don't think this will be the last time. Well, I'm, I know for a fact, it won't be the last time that you'll be on uh, the show. <laughs> But I know that um, you've given you've given me everything that I never thought I would get from you, and I'm grateful that you did. And I and I hold this I hold a space for you, and I will for your healing and for your progression and for conversation and for your honesty because you are vulnerable and you are raw and you are you're as real as it gets in in all ways. And I'm grateful for the suffering you've been through because. I wouldn't have gotten the light that we've got now. And I think you're only going to continue to bring that forward in everything you do with American Yogi, with the way you are with your children, with the difference that you're going to have in those little girls' lives. Instead of being the angry dad, you're going to be the compassionate dad, the dad that can sit there and have the hard conversations and be empathetic and meet them where they are instead of above them. And I, um, I'm forever grateful for this time. I think, you know, I know that, you know, it's, it's absolutely reciprocated on this end. You know, there's, there's a reason that, you know, we both have been through what we've been through in, in our lives and, you know, taking the paths we've taken to, to cross at this exact point in time and be able to share you know, in this way. And, you know, one of the greatest gifts that I think you can give someone is to see them, you know, to truly see them and to hold space for that person in, in that place that they, that they live in at that moment. And, uh, I'm really grateful for for you know, being able to speak with you not just today, but you know the times we've spoken before this and and being able to connect. Like you, 
I've done a lot of podcasts since we started American Yogi. And this has been probably the most heartfelt, just like raw, authentic, emotional, because um, it was a conversation with you and it was, it was really beautiful. And it really was a pleasure. And I think, you know, talking to you is good, good for, for my soul. And, you know, the fact that you can, you came into my life at a, a point where I needed to share at a point where I needed to continue to tell my story and, and, and you know, continue this life of service that, 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 you know, that I've laid down for myself. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity. And I thank you for the love that, you, that you've shown. Dude, it's, it's, you're welcome anytime, any, anytime. And you have my number. So, you know, you, how to use it and it's, yeah. uh, it's welcome. So, all right, my friends. Well, everyone, why don't you tell everyone where they can find anything about you in American Yogi? All right. You can go to AmericanYogi.com. That's our website. We have classes on there. We have all the products we sell. And then if you go on to Live American Yogi on Instagram or American Yogi LLC on Facebook, on Instagram, it's L-I-V-E, American Yogi. Um, that's where I post all my poetry and writing and photos and try to share share in the community. Dude, you're a, you're a gem and you are a uh, asset to society in one of the biggest ways. So please thank keep you, being that. Yeah. Hey, it's, it's all you. You don't have to thank me. That's just you doing it. So I guess we'll talk to you soon. And everyone else, you yeah. stick with me, everyone. Thank you. It's, it's Phil. We'll see you next week. <laughs>